What is up, everybody? How's it going? Welcome to another edition of Benzinga Live. Spencer is all here. Thank you, Rohan. AB will be joining us in a few moments here. He is wrapping up a recording we are doing for the latest episode of the Raz Report with Jason Raznick. So he'll be on uh, whenever that ends, probably in the next 10 or so minutes. But we got a lot going on today. We got uh, some SPAC news. So we brought on Chris Catchy to tell us about that. We have uh, some IPOs to discuss with Matt Hammond. We've got Jake Wujastic from TrendSpider, Chris Capri from Second Skies Trading, and we may even talk, actually, I know we'll talk a little bit of Forex. So uh, um, we got a lot going on today. And uh, Shelly, what, what do you mean no? Aaron is here. He'll be joining us in like five minutes or ten minutes. I don't know when. But he's here. I promise he'll be on the show today. Uh, in the meantime, you're stuck with myself and George Costanza. So let's roll that intro and uh, start the show. This is Ben Zingawa. Spencer Israel and producer AB. What's up, everybody? How are we doing? Someone told me buy high, sell higher. So. Let's get Matt Hammond on the show to talk some IPOs. Jake Wujastic from Trend Spider. We have a. All right, how was everyone's weekend? You guys have a good weekend? Mine was relaxing, uneventful, a lot of errands. I'm curious, Shelly, Firat, Matty Ice, Easy. This is everyone's weekend. Shelly, what you, I didn't have bed hair this morning. I I I shower and like do that was not bed hair. I don't know why you said that. That that cut me deep, Shelly. That cut you said that you said I'd bedhead this morning. I don't think I did. If I did it was unintentional, which is even worse. Anyway, uh let's start the show off by doing a quick crypto update find out what exactly is going on in the world of crypto right now oh my lordy oh well it happens red across the board today bitcoin down five percent eth down six percent Solana down over 8%. Hey, how's our favorite coin? How's Mongoose coin doing? Do we have a, can I get a quote on Mongoose coin, please? Let me, let me do that. Thank you. Oh, Rohan, you actually know? I'm surprised. I I mean, I can Google things. I'm surprised you're in the know on on, on Mongoose coin. Do you know what that is? Uh, Very slightly from what you guys have talked about. Very slightly. Okay. Okay. But also, I will say, you know, the whole crypto map being red, it's a very good thing. I mean, I wouldn't be upset about it. Because you want to buy the dip, right? Of course. Um, yeah, I, I know. I saw the Russia thing, too. Whoever posted about that. Yeah, Russia said they're not going to uh, let their mutual funds own Bitcoin. I don't know how large the Russian mutual fund market is. I'm sure it's it's several billion dollars, if not more. Um, you also had Elon Musk saying a bunch of stuff about Bitcoin and, uh, what it is and is not good for, um, all of those things are not reasons, uh, to me why Bitcoin would be down today or why crypto, the crypto market doesn't, doesn't generally, doesn't generally move on any one headline. The only times I can remember that is when China outright banned mining and when uh, the SEC has come out uh, and or, or and, and said something negative about Bitcoin, that's the only times I can really remember the crypto market reacting to like actual news. 
the market is so uh, democratized and it's impossible to pinpoint why it's why it's moving up or down on, on any given point. But to, to what Rohan said, I am generally in the same camp. I like when crypto goes down uh, because it gives me a chance to buy more at a lower price. My buying strategy when it comes to crypto is very, very simple. I do not try and time the market. I do not try and do technicals. I just buy on a recurring basis every couple of months. I buy a little bit more and a little more and a little more. And the idea is eventually I'll have enough of my overall portfolio invested in crypto that I'll be satisfied. But I'm not there yet. So in the meantime, I'm a net buyer. Um, and this applies mostly to Bitcoin and ETH. I, I, I've only bought Solano one time. I do not know if I want to buy more. I do not know if I want to buy more cryptos, like different coins, frankly. Um, I'm not really... At this point, in you know, in my life, I'm not really in the market to speculate. Uh, I could be, but I, maybe at some point in the future, but I'm not there right now. So, you won't really see me buying uh, Mongoose Coin with any significant, you know, with anything more than a couple hundred bucks. Speaking of speaking of Mongoose Coin, is yeah. there a reason? Like, I, I see a market cap here, right? But is there supposed to be some like incomprehensible price on this that's just a lot of zeros? Because that's what I'm looking dude, at. That, dude, that's how they all are. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. But I can tell you the market cap is down like 5.5%. All right, that's something. <laughs> yeah, because it's like it's like point zero 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 two seven or whatever. And that's how Sheeb is too, and, and, and Doge was for that matter. Um, but anyway, this has been your crypto update. I'm a net buyer, and I, I remain that way. If you want some free Bitcoin, it's very simple to get a free Bitcoin in this life. All you have to do is go to your Voyager app on your phone. If you don't have Voyager, download it. Enter the offer code Zing, Z-I-N-G. Fund your account with 100 bucks and make your first trade. When you do all that, they will give you $50 in free Bitcoin. What a time to be alive. Let's move off of crypto for a second here. Let's move into SPACs, from crypto to SPACs. I mentioned a couple of headlines this morning in SPAC land. I'm sure some of you saw the Harley Davidson news. We will talk about that. But we need someone who actually understands this stuff and is not just me. So with that being said, let's bring on Chris Catchy, Benzinga's SPAC guru slash expert slash um, whatever synonyms there are for those two things. Chris Catchy, what's up, man? How are we doing? What's going on? Yeah, welcome to Merger Monday 4. SPAC deals announced now this morning. Oh. A lot of activity in the space, including that big one that you alluded to just a minute ago. All right. You want to start there? I ha- All right. So for disclosure, Chris, I got your 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 pictures. Uh, I don't know the order that they're supposed to go in, so we're going to have to figure this out as we go. But um, wh- I'll start wherever you want to start. You want to start with the hog or, or one of the other ones? Yeah, let's start with hog. And we can always look at those slides, you know, during while I'm talking or after, you know, some of them okay. provide a, a nice guideline to some of their projections. So for those who haven't heard the news, Harley Davidson is spinning off their electric vehicle uh, unit Livewire. So Livewire is merging with AEA Bridges Impact Corp. That's ticker IMPX. Um, This is going to value Livewire at $1.77 billion. So Harley-Davidson is also uh, investing $100 million in the deal. 
and so is Kimco, which is a strategic partner. Kimco is a Taiwanese motorcycle and sport vehicle manufacturer. So this deal is expected to close in the first half of 2022. Uh, public IMPX shareholders will own 17.3% of the new company. Harley Davidson will own 74% of the new company and Kimco will own 4%. New ticker will be LVW. So Livewire has a plan to redefine motorcycling. They intend to be the industry leader in electric motorcycles. They're going to build upon Harley Davidson's 118 year uh, history. And interesting note that uh, Johan Yikes, uh, who's the CEO of Harley Davidson, he will serve as the chairman and acting CEO of Livewire for up to two years after the merger. So Livewire has a 10-year relationship with Harley-Davidson, and they uh, became a separate division in 2019. So Livewire 1 is the current electric motorcycle model, comes with a price tag of around uh, $20,000. So Livewire said it will benefit from their strategic partners, Harley-Davidson and Kimco, to leverage uh, items like engineering, manufacturing, distribution, supply chain, and logistics. Total addressable market size, $2.5 billion in 2021, growing to $20.4 billion in 2030. And we'll sell its motorcycles through store and store models, gallery stores, pop-up retail stores, and Livewire on the road. Harley-Davidson has over 1,400 global locations, and they will start nationwide sales and support for Livewire in the first half of 2022. Harley-Davidson has market share of 45% in North America, 6% in Europe, and 68% in China for the 601cc ICE market. Uh, so now we get to forecast. So Livewire is forecasting 387 units in 2021, 957 in 2022, and then we really see the expansion uh, in a couple of years. So 100,961 units in 2026, 190,000 in 2030. And with that being said, revenue forecast, 33 million for 2021, 56 million for 2022, 1.8 billion in 2026 and $3 billion in 2030. Gross margins expected to be 18.6% in 2026 and long-term 25 to 30% gross margins. Uh, IMPX shares up slightly today. Hog, though, up 10% on this deal. Spencer, I heard you guys talk about it on pre-market prep. Uh, what are your overall thoughts on this deal? And then let's jump into uh, questions and those slides. Yeah, I can kind of see both sides. Because uh, on the one hand, you're ba if you know th this is basically a admission uh, from Harley Davidson side that okay, we are going to forever be a gas guzzling base company uh, I mean we're, you know we're still gonna own this other company but like a Harley Davidson as you know it is gonna is not is not going to change and I could see why like there's reasons to not like that because um, you know EVs are growing and um, uh, you know gas gasoline based uh, engines are not however nobody buys Harleys because they're environmentally friendly or they're you know efficient fuel efficient right you buy them because they're loud and they're noisy and they're uh you know it, it, it's, a, it's a lifestyle um i have always part of me has always wanted to buy a motorcycle 
Um, I don't know if I actually would do it, uh, but I've thought about, you know, when, if or when I would ever do that. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't hate the deal at all. The one thing I'm never a fan of, Chris, I don't really like it when like the same guy is the CEO of two different companies, you know? Yeah, that was that, interesting that, to, to read in there. And that's going to be for, for two years. I mean, that he's going to be the CEO of both companies. I was surprised because obviously Livewire has their own management team, their own division, um, yeah. you know, so why not uh, have one of them lead it? But I, like you said, Harley Davidson's still going to own a big piece of this company. And with that CEO, they're also going to have the big control here. Um, so, you know, I, I like these spinoff deals. I think we're going to see more of these, Spencer, where these big publicly traded companies decide to spin off units of their company and, you used to do that, you know, just by a listing. And now I think we're going to see some SPAC deals come out from these kind of carve outs in different industries. It's definitely an interesting idea worth, worth thinking about. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not even convinced that the, the EV bike market is, is, is a thing. Are you, I mean, do people buy bikes? Cause they're, they're fuel. Maybe it is. I, I, I don't know. See, when you say bikes, I, I think motorcycles, no. I okay. think bicycles, yes. Okay. Um, and we saw that with some other SPAC deals, you know, especially over in Asia, right? Two-wheel vehicles is a huge global market. But motorcycles, I mean, you said it, Spencer. I mean, uh, you know, I have family members, right, who, who own motorcycles. And uh, it's, it's all about, yeah, the noise. Hitting the the open road, the brand, the lifestyle, it, you know, I, I don't know if environmental concerns are top of mind for this uh, demographic. Plus, frankly, if you're on a motorcycle and it's quiet, that could even be like a safety concern, right? Like 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 the loudness lets you other people know when you're coming, and, you know, point. so they hear you before before they see you. Um, so. I mean, I, I'm into motorcycles. I, I don't quite know if I'm into, like, electric motorcycles yet. Um, electric cars is one thing. Electric motorcycles is something entirely. Uh, but you're right. I think it's a, a very interesting that we're seeing the spinoff into a SPAC. Um, definitely wouldn't be surprised to see a lot more of those, and we've seen a number of big spinoffs this year already. Uh, so it's a, could could we'll see. Could be a good way to unlock value. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how this, how this plays out. What else we got, Chris? All right, and then the other uh, big deal I wanted to talk about, so we have a Metaverse company going public via SPAC. If you haven't heard Metaverse, obviously uh, a huge growth term, a huge buzzword, right, with Facebook changing their name to Meta Platforms. We're getting lots of companies going all in on Metaverse. So now we have Metaverse infrastructure company Infinite World going public with Ares One Acquisition Corp. That ticker is R-A-M. So this values Infinite World at a pro forma enterprise value of $700 million, which includes $93 million worth of cryptocurrencies currently owned by Infinite World. So public RAM shareholders will own 20.4% of the new company. After the merger, the company will trade as Infinite World with the ticker JPG on the NASDAQ. Love that ticker. Um, so Infinite World acts as a bridge between the physical and digital worlds. They empower brands and creators with the engine and technologies they need to engage customers and fans in the metaverse. They offer infrastructure, marketplace solutions, and content production platforms for items like non-fungible tokens, 
They've partnered with more than 75 brands and creators. They also own a segment called Dreamview, which was founded in 2016 by several former leaders at Lucasfilm and Disney. Dreamview offers visual effects and 3D art forms that have been used in blockbuster films, brand campaigns, and sporting events. So they said that this merger will help them accelerate their platform and expand brand partnerships. The list of brands, uh, we're going to show a slide uh, in a minute. I mean, it, it's got some brands that everyone knows and loves. They see a $2.5 trillion market size for the metaverse by 2030. Uh, brands are expected to release products in the metaverse at a growing rate going forward. And as you can imagine, you know, a minimal revenue right now. They see revenue of $19 million next year, $71 million in 2023. And by 2025, $384 million. Uh, Spencer, can you show this slide? There it is. I mean, so, you know, we talk about this deal and you may not think, you know, every company is, you know, betting on the metaverse. But look at this list. Amazon, Bleacher Report, Disney, Home Depot, Hot Wheels, Mattel, Warner Brothers. Uh, these are all companies that have partnered with Infinite World. So to me, Spencer, this is a perfect example, right, of that term that we use at Benzinga, uh, the thing behind the thing. You know, if you want to bet on Metaverse, you can bet on, you know, Facebook, you can bet on Roblox, you can bet on some of these other smaller companies, or maybe you can bet on a company like this that's going to have, you know, a hand in helping bring companies to the Metaverse. Uh, Spencer, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, again, a small company. Uh, you know, still in the growth stages. Metaverse, though, is going to get some attention, I think, from investors and also that ticker JPG. What, what did you say the, the the deal value of the company at again? Seven hundred million, I believe. Yeah, th yeah, that's what you said. Okay, okay. So, uh, on the spectrum of valuations in Spac Lane, that's pretty. That's pretty low. Yeah. Which it, which is a good sign, because um, this company is still early stages. Obviously some big brand names uh, on this chart here. Um, and actually, oh, nice. Do you, do you hear that? Is that just me? Is that just my end? That may be just me. Sorry it's about that. Just, yeah, um, I don't hear it. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so I'm like, obviously I'm like super into the metaverse, right? It's like very bullish, brand new thing. But like, it's so early days. I have no idea who's gonna, you know, be, be the winners here. I saw a, a tweet or a note over the weekend that it made me roll my eyes so hard, and I think it was it was a an article about a Jeffries note, and it was like Jeffries says it's not too late to get into the to buy the metaverse. And I was like, not too late, not too late. It's 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 too early. It's really too early. early it's, yeah. it's like the, the top of the first inning here. Yeah. Not too late. What do you mean not too late? It's the top of the first. So uh, I I don't know. I. I I, I don't know, man, is my answer. I, I'm bullish to space, but how do we know who the winners are going to be? I have no idea. Um, I, 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 I hope – I guess here's what I'm hoping for. Um, within a year, a couple of these companies will set, set themselves – will begin to set themselves apart uh, in terms of like um, – I'm, I'm not – I don't quite know how to put it. Like operations in the metaverse or um, whatever, whatever things they're doing there. Um, and then I'll follow those leaders, whomever they are. 
whether it's Metaverse Company or, or or Meta or whomever, right? I don't know. I'm bullish space, but I don't know who or how. I don't yeah. even know what to look for. <laughs> like, partnership, partnership seems like a good thing to look forward that to. That does seem like but a like, good thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know. Wait, we have a few more slides here. So there's there's uh that's a little bit more about the company. Um, I I, I want to pull these up here. Okay, so marketplace infrastructure. So that's interesting. Um, because yeah, so again, all... I mean they're they're gonna partner with these brands, and to me, that's one of the reasons why I like this Spencer is because if if you're a brand, are you going to you know hire people? Are you going to invest a bunch of money to create your own metaverse division? Or are you just going to partner with someone who you know has done it already? And if you pull up that slide that's got the uh, the image of LeBron James, right? They also have a, a digital no, image division. Um, Wait, where's LeBron James? I think it's the <laughs> there's LeBron. There there's LeBron. There's LeBron. So okay. so they did like this digital uh, series where they did these hypothetical one-on-one battles, right? So it was like uh, LeBron against uh, you know uh, I think it was against like Wilt Chamberlain. It was Kevin Durant against Larry Bird, right? Just a fun little series. But if you Ooh. look at that image. I mean, that's something I would picture being in the metaverse, that LeBron James there on screen. So they've got some history. Uh, again, minimal revenue. We still don't know you know, what those partnerships look like. But uh, I, I think for people looking for a pure play metaverse company, this is at least one to consider going forward. Uh, Spencer, how about the ticker, right? We talk about tickers a lot. JPG is going to be the new ticker. Do you think that brings some uh, value and power going forward? I don't quite get it because, like, JPEG? But that's, like, so That's so Web 1. We're on Web 3 right now. <laughs> we are Web 3.0. So, also, I'm, they didn't I'm, I'm get, sure. uh, they didn't sure get, get JPEG it. because I believe that ticker is already taken. Um, but JPG, uh, the new ticker... Um, I, I, I like what I like what Abhex just said. The software side is probably uh, behind the hardware. Yeah, I, I, I'm down with that. I'm down yeah. with that. Um, uh, however, I would want I would definitely pay money to see a virtual LeBron James versus Michael Jordan like yeah. basketball basketball. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look game. at those battles and see which ones they did because they highlighted a couple in the presentation. I didn't know about this. Um, again, yeah. I, I hadn't heard of this company, but these hypothetical one-on-one battles in the metaverse, I mean, I, I think that's something that people would watch if they knew about it. So the fact that I didn't know about it, I mean, maybe there's some uh, room for brand awareness there from this company. All right. What else we got here today, Chris? All right. So those were the big two I wanted to highlight. The other deals that were announced today, we did get SVFC uh, with Symbotic. So Symbotic is a revolutionary artificial intelligence enabled technology platform for, for the supply chain. So this is a soft bank SPAC. Um, this is done at a, uh, you know, a large valuation, but they have a $5 billion contracted backlog. Uh, Walmart, Albertsons are two of their customers. So they have operating systems in 1400 stores in 16 states and eight provinces in Canada. 433 million expected in revenue in 2022, up 73%. Uh, so this is robots, right? Autonomous robots that operate in stores to help with inventory and supply chain issues. Um, public shareholders will own 6% and Walmart will own 9% of this company going forward. Uh, $4.75 billion uh, enterprise value. 
Spencer, what do you think of this? Uh, I know we just uh, had an interview at our uh, last event with a robotics company, right, in the security side of things. This one helping with supply chain. I mean, I I've been to stores before where they have, you know, robots that kind of go around and scan items and, and check inventory. Uh, you know, do you see that being a growth area? And, you know, what does that relationship with Walmart mean for this company? Yeah, it, it's funny because, like, we've all been saying, oh, yeah, the, the supply chain crunch is going to have lasting implications in the, in the way of companies investing heavily into robotics, right? Um, but I actually don't know of any companies that are doing that uh, besides, like, I assumed, like, Costco and Walmart and Target Raw and Amazon, obviously Amazon. Um, but this is kind of the first pure play that I've heard of, not that I've looked too hard. So uh, I, I'm I'm into it. I'm very into it. Like I, I don't know. Like wh uh, like where do you stand on this? Because I'm I'm into the idea for sure. Yeah, I mean I like it. Obviously that's a big valuation, but the backing of SoftBank and Walmart, I mean that stands out, right? Uh, you, you know some of these other deals, they're companies you've never heard of. They're partners you've never heard of. You've got Walmart owning nine percent of the company. They partner in their stores. Um, I like it. And, you know, I think it's something that's here to stay, right? I think there used to be this big worry that robots were going to take people's jobs. And I think we've learned with supply chain issues, labor crisis, that that's not necessarily the case and that we need some of this automation to help with issues that we're having in the country and worldwide. Yeah. Although I do think eventually that they will take people's jobs. <laughs> or, or take over the world. But I mean, that's a well, whole nother whole yeah, other story yeah, but yeah. and yeah someone mentioning in the chat there is berkshire gray bgry that's a similar robotics company uh they're a uh, logistics and uh supply chain company they work with warehouses um i think they have deals with amazon and some others so that's another name in the space to watch um and yeah kay lopez saying tyson is doing it with tyson foods See so we are seeing yeah. it, right? We're seeing yeah. that these companies are using robotics. So Symbotic, you know, I, I, I like this deal. I like the growth ahead. Um, I'm working on my article about it. So you'll see that on Benzinga.com later. Um, but again, a lot of deals today. So it's hard to really, you know, figure out, you know, uh, which ones are the long-term winners here. Yeah. And you know what I would love? Like, I would love, like, so Tyson obviously is not, building their own robots because that's yeah. not what Tyson does. So whoever Tyson's buying from, you know, is it Berkshire Gray? Is it Symbotic? They got to buy from somewhere, right? That's what, yeah. that's what I want to know. That's what I want to know is who's actually selling to the big, you know, manufacturing companies that, that actually need that, that actually need this stuff. So whether that's Symbotic or not, I have no idea, but that's, that's, that's what I'm interested in. Okay, what else we got? And then our, our fourth deal, we have HYAC. This is a deal with Biot, which is a medical practice building business within the hormone optimization space. I've never heard of this company. Biotech is not my specialty by any means. Uh, revenue of $136 million expected this year, up 17%, and $163 million estimated next year. Um, this was done at a $667 million valuation. Um, I'll have to dive into this one further. Um, but again, four deals today, Spencer. We haven't had a Monday like this for SPACs in a long time. Um, we did get one deal called off as well. 
SCVX called mm. off their deal with Bright Machine. So that's a trend we're starting to see, right? The last three or four weeks now, we've had at least one deal called off. Um, and then the Wait, other- I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What was, the, what was the ticker on that one? Uh, SCVX. Thank you. Okay. So we should be down today, up, down slightly. Um, again, they're back to the drawing board now to find a new merger target. Um, but again, a growing trend. And, you know, on the flip side, though, we, we have all these SPACs searching for targets. And I think there was, a, you know, big worry that there wasn't enough companies to bring public. But then, Spencer, that deal today to carve out the Harley-Davidson electric vehicle unit, I think at least strengthens part of the argument that there still are, you know, companies looking to go public, whether they're private, whether they're, you know, spinoffs. Um, so that is something to watch. And then the other one I would highlight, we do have Planet, the satellite company. We talked uh, with Niccolo Damasi and Will Marshall mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. PL is the ticker. They report quarterly earnings tonight after market close. They just completed their SPAC merger last week. This is really early for a company to report earnings after completing that merger. So a lot of people are excited about this and think it's a bullish sign that earnings are coming this early. Um, but we will see, and I will definitely be watching that one after market close tonight. Uh, and for whatever it's worth, uh, Planet w- was the subject of the latest episode of How I Built This on NPR, which is a great podcast if you are into such things. I have not heard it yet, but I will listen to it this week. Um, and so so that, so that I saw that and I thought, hey, I know that company. <laughs> you do um, know that company now, right. yeah. What was I about to say to you, Chris? Uh, two things. Oh, yeah. Um, eToro. I saw some some noise about that. Is is that is that looks that merger looks like it's maybe not going to happen now or, or or what? Yeah, that merger. It's been uh, delayed um, and very uh, time time sensitive, taking a long time to be completed. It is an Israeli company. That's something I pointed out before on here that a lot of times these international deals take a longer time. Um, but there are heavy, heavy reports that that deal is going to fall apart. Um, it, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. As of now, it's just been postponed, um, which means we don't have, you know, a definitive date anymore. Um, that was one I was looking forward to, right? Spencer, you and I talked about that, right? That, uh, you know, they have right now the copycat trading, but they have some growth initiatives, including, you know, growing share in the U.S., also, I don't know if you saw Spencer, but the founder and CEO of eToro, he bought a Board Ape Yacht Club NFT, changed his profile picture, and along with that, he said that eToro was exploring NFTs and building out uh, the potential for a marketplace. So uh, keep keep that in mind. Again, we don't know if that deal is going to go through. FTCV is the ticker. But uh, uh, they are looking at NFTs along with their crypto that, that's platform. Probably not going to help him with the SEC at all. Probably uh, not. I, you don't want to be throwing a bunch of new things, right, out there. Chris, I'm. I also curious before that you go. Did you did you see the article in the Wall Street Journal uh, where they talked to, they asked for SPACs predictions? Did Did you see that one? I think I saw part of it. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, I had Julian Klimachko quoted in it. We've had him yeah, on the, on the yeah, show before. Yeah, it, yeah. It was, they just asked the same people. They asked five people the same question, where are SPACs in five years? Some interesting, interesting thoughts. I, I do like uh, what you just said, uh, what we said before about, you know, the, the, the spinoffs into a SPAC. Yep. Um, you know, I feel like we're maybe moving away from, like, the traditional um, – 
SPAC buys this growth company for a crazy valuation. And maybe we're in for some more like complicated deal structures. Maybe that's a good thing, yeah. right? Like, like Bill Ackman tried he and tried. Ultimately, ultimately failed to, 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 to buy a piece of a company, uh, Universal Music Group. It didn't quite work out. Um, Spencer, I think we're, we're, great, great point. I'll tell you the yeah. next one to watch to see if the SEC lets it go. I don't know if you heard this one, but Panera right, is going public again, and there is a SPAC, the ticker is H-U-G-S, that is essentially acquiring an early stake in Panera pre-IPO, and that hasn't really been done before, so we'll see if the SEC allows that, because that is another one maybe to watch, where some of these companies, you know, before they IPO, they actually get investment from the SPAC, uh, you know, to get that capital going. Chris, do you know what Panera is called in St. Louis? Uh, it's the St. Louis Bread Company. Yep. You do, you know how I, do you know how I know that? I don't know how Wait, you what? know that, honestly. So so I used to work for, for Olga's Kitchen, right, Michigan brand, um, and I went to Chesterfield Mall in Missouri mm. to open an Olga's Kitchen, and we thought that that store was going to do amazing. Uh, it was a great mall, and inside that mall there was this huge st louis bread company that always had a huge line and no one in missouri knew what olga's was they all knew what panera and the st louis bread company is and eventually that olga's closed because they could not compete with panera i I remember you i remember you telling me the story that that you uh went to chesterfield for a while so i forgot about that i should have known that you knew that spencer i'll I'll fill you in so yeah Yeah, panera was founded in st louis uh, and started as St. Louis Bread Co., not Panera. And, and, and in St. Louis, it's like a colloquial, like people just call it Bread Co. Hey, do you want to go grab a bagel at Bread Co.? It's, it's not Panera. It's not even St. Louis Bread Co. It's just Bread Co. Um, and then I guess when I think a different company came in and said, like, all right, let's expand. Let's franchise this out. Let's go national. And they decided St. Louis Bread Company wasn't a good enough name to... For a national brand, that's probably right. For a national brand. <laughs> so they went with Panera, but they kept... Uh, and, it, and it's so funny because, like, even the, the branding and everything, like, when you go to uh, a bread co in St. Louis, you get a cup, and it has the Panera logo on it, but it says St. Louis Bread Co. So it's so interesting that I can't think of another national brand that is called something completely different in just one city. Shelly, that, that's why I'm confused because I didn't know this. I'm, I'm learning here. We're all learning here. Some, that's some a, good, that's a good question, though, A.B. Uh, I'm going to have to do some digging to see if there is any other companies that are like that. Spencer, do you know any? Um, that have a different name, like regionally, than they do on a national scale. No. Well, you have um, Hardee's and Carl's Jr. is the same chain, but different names in different places. But that's, that's a little bit different. Um, yeah, that's I'm trying true. to think that there, there's a story behind who uh, came in and kind of, uh, you know, like I don't know if they bought uh, Panera outright or if they just like paid to license the uh, the branding to franchise it out, but. Whoever was in charge of that did a really good job, and I think they uh, are, are doing the same thing with another restaurant right now. I can't oh. remember off the top of my head. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let it, be, let it be known I'm bearish any company that goes private and then goes public again. Like don't don't like, like it. That, Wait, like you, that you mean donut you mean that was chain? public, Is goes private, and then goes public again? Yeah, one that's public, it goes private, and then it goes public again. That's Krispy Kreme. I'm done with you. It's Panera. That you know. How uh, long ago was uh, Panera publicly traded? Yeah, uh, four years. I don't know. Three, four yeah, I was years. thinking like six or seven years ago, and then they got bought out by uh, uh, what is it, JAB Holdings, right? 
Yeah. Wait, chat's got your back, guys. Kroger has a different name in Kansas. Today we learned. What? All right, we'll look Dylan. into that. We'll we'll look into that. I, I love that's my favorite. Uh, one of my favorite things about uh, like talking to people from different states and stuff is just the regional uh, grocery chains. Like, like yeah. Spencer, what was your regional grocery chain in New Jersey? Shoprite. Shoprite. Uh, yep. There you go. Down we in had... Florida, they have Publix. Like, I, I had Publix never is heard... amazing. Publix. I had awesome. never heard. Of, I had never heard of Publix until I went. Publix to Florida, is awesome. So... Yeah. so, so Chris, when are we? Are we going to continue seeing these? Uh, I guess maybe this is a question for our next guest, Matt Hammond, who we got to get. Chris, wait, wait, there you guys go. are back. Hey. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh man, that was funny. Uh, yeah, we we lost our connection on our end. I don't know if you guys just heard me curse. I hope you didn't. It's very rare that that happens here in the Benzinga office. Okay. Um, when Ron fired. Aaron, finish your it thought. Happened. Finish your thought, and then we'll just get. Like, I feel like carve outs, right? The spin outs. Well, I just we keep seeing, you know, whether it's Partillo's, uh, Dutch Bros, you know, all these kind of fast food chains going public. I, I wonder if every other chain is going to see this and be like, oh yeah, we should do this. All these other ones are doing well, and, and when the the end of that will be. Yeah, I, I actually put out an article of a couple of restaurant stocks um, to look at as acquisition targets. Those, of course, are publicly traded ones. Um, Outback parent Bloomin' Brands, right, is always talked about as a potential target by private equity. But I think you're right that a lot of these like fast casual brands have to at least be considering going public, right? We saw it with, uh, you know, uh, Dutch Bros. We saw it with Portillo's. We saw it with Sweet Green. Um, you know, I think we're going to get more restaurants going public again. Uh, Spencer, I, I'm kind of on the same boat with you with Panera going public again. Um, I don't eat at Panera. I don't know how much growth they have. I do know their digital growth has been very high, but I don't know if that's a reason to, uh, you know, re-enter the, the public markets and how investors will uh, take that. Yeah. It's a money grab. It's a money grab. It's you know what stock I haven't looked at in a while is cake, Cheesecake Factory. Cheesecake was one of the ones that made it out of, of the pandemic by the skin of their teeth. Yeah, do yeah, you know they, how they, they got, made it out of the pandemic? They got that money! They <laughs> told, did you never see that? Because I remember, so there's one in the mall, right, that I used to, to work yeah. at Olga's in. They essentially told landlords of malls, we're not going to pay rent. Right. And, and they told the landlords, hey, if you don't like it, evict us, right? And so they, was... they, didn't, they didn't pay rent for months. So that's how they made it out because all these other restaurants were paying rent and not having money to pay their employees. And Cheesecake was just like, eh, we're not going to pay rent because we're too important to this mall. And with that being said, that Dude, shows how they're right. they are. They're the right. Is, they're I freaking mean, right. Yeah. yeah that, so that, that was one of the big point. That was one of the big headlines that came out a couple weeks after the, the market crash from Corona. It was just, I remember it perfectly. It was just like Cheesecake Factory says it cannot afford to pay its rent. And I was like, well, me and Cheesecake Factory both. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. something in common. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. But well. yeah, so the, so the stock obviously got hammered and then came all the way back. One of those stocks that went well above its pre-COVID levels for God knows what reasons, but it's now look, looks like it's it's come back down toward its its kind of pre-COVID levels. Looks like it was actually we're like right at where we were um, before the COVID crash. So interesting there. We'll have to keep a lookout, Chris, on, on, on some of these food names. Definitely. Chris Couchy, thanks a lot, man. Always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Smash that All like, right. guys.
Smash that like. You heard the man. All right, we're running behind. We got to bring on Matt Hammond here. I, I would love to get Matt's thoughts on that discussion. Uh, we noted several uh, fast casual IPOs this year. Matt, of course, watches the IPO market like a hawk. Let's get Matt Hammond on the show from IPO Warriors. Matt, what's up, sir? How are we doing today? I'm doing all right. How about you guys? Good. Do, uh, did we? Do you have thoughts on that conversation on, on just all the plethora of like restaurant IPOs? It seems like that we've gotten. This yeah, year, or? those actually did really well. Um, the first one that really kind of got everyone's attention was Dutch Brothers, and I missed, missed an entry on that one by about fifty cents, which was pretty. Um, bummed about, but I didn't expect it to do what it did. I don't think anybody uh, really outside of maybe Portland, but uh, it started started kind of putting together the story, which made a lot of sense, which was, hey, if people love this brand in one place, if it's growing, if it's success, successful on a regional level, why wouldn't it be successful on a national level? Um, so with Dutch Brothers, we saw it spike. It was over 100% within a few days of the debut. That was crazy. And, um, we had another one that sort of flew under the radar and didn't do phenomenally well, but that was uh, First Watch, First Watch Restaurant Restaurant Group. Um, but it did well enough to kind of put it on, you know, put things on watch. And by the time we had Portillo's, we said, hey, you know, this one really could be a good play. Now, that happened to be my wife's birthday and I was taking the day off. Uh, I didn't, again, expect it to be as, uh, uh, you know, explosive as it turned out to be. Um, but at that point we could see the trend and by the time sweet greens debuted, the story was everywhere to the extent that sweet greens ended up debuting at simply too high of a premium for it to be a great IPO, uh, debut play. Um, in terms of if you bought the IPO stock, then you did great. I think the IPO price was $28 priced above range by two or $3. And then it debuted trading at something like 50, you know, above $50, uh, which just, you know, at that point for a restaurant chain just doesn't give enough upside room for it to go further uh, to make it worth buying the debut. And, you know, we we're also kind of at the tail end of this, you know, very hot market, which has since pulled back. So, um, you know, there's two conversations here. One is, are these stocks in demand clearly? Uh, they are, they're, they're an interesting growth story. They're not just tech um, people need to eat. Uh, certainly delivery eating out, it seems more and more people want someone else to make their food for them. And, you know, less and less people either know how or even want to cook at home these days. So, you know, I started making lists of companies and you know, that I would love to see, for example, in and out Burger is supremely popular in mm -hmm. you know California and the Western states and unknown on the East Coast. And I understand that they don't want to expand too quickly. I don't know that they'll IPO, but if they did, it would be one to watch. But with IPO trading, if we're going to kind of segue into the strategies that I'm using to kind of make money off of IPO debuts, I'm not really buying IPOs. First of all, I'm not getting IPO allocations. I'm just buying when they debut, just like everybody else. My strategy is about trying to find what is going to have immediate demand on the relatively low supply and give me an opportunity to take an immediate scalp within, you know, ideally the first day uh, right away off an initial run. Uh, sometimes it's a day two run. Um, if I'm forced to bag hold longer than that, that's sometimes going to be necessary. 
but we do see IPOs initially run up, but then over time, you know, within the first year, there's more of a, first of all, they're very volatile. Uh, when the market sells off, one of the first things people will sell off is any new IPOs that they're holding. Uh, we see a lot of pullbacks, especially once the lockup period expires. So when a company does their IPO, they're coming to market with a limited number of shares and all of the, like the, say the insiders or the executives or the early investors who put money into the company or earn stock options, they're subject to a lockup period, which is generally 180 days. So we're going to see limited supply and high demand for the first 180, you know, 180 days. We're going to see that catalyst off all the announcements of, hey, they're IPOing. Now you can buy it. It's sort of a feeding frenzy where new stock is in the market. Everybody's looking for something new to buy, especially when the market's hot. And that will send the stock price up considerably. But if the debut price is too high and everybody's already bought in or the float is too big, then there's just not much room for it to go up. And, you know, when I'm looking for trading opportunities, I'm looking for things that are a combination of, and that's kind of going to segue into the, um, you know, what I'm looking for, especially with low float IPOs, I'm looking for uh, a combination of demand, social media buzz, uh, what kind of retail allocation was offered, um, and then what is that pre-debut indication price? So with Portillo's and Dutch Brothers, I would say that traders hadn't quite fixated on the trend of these regional chains going on these insane runs off the debut. And by the time Sweet Greens debuted, everyone was kind of like, this will be the next thing. It's a for sure thing. And we just saw the debut price go from kind of the high 30s all the way through the 40s into the 50s you know, from an IPO price that had originally ranged at like 22 to 25 and then priced at 28. And you're just going, geez, the valuation on this, um, yeah. is, you know, how much more demand is left. And, uh, you know, that you have to factor all these into a, you know, into a debut play. Um, so let's jump into what worked last week. And uh, HashiCorp was the one that I said, like, of all the, I didn't like Nubank because the float was too high. And it just dropped off of debut and has kind of come back into the debut price. But with close to 3 million shares, you're just not going to see that much action. Uh, HashiCorp had just 15 million shares. And I ended up not playing it because it debuted right at the IPO price. The market's super shaky right now. There's other plays this week that I want to make sure I have my cash free for. And, uh, you know, growth and tech for a year or for a year and a half have been can't miss you know, just play them at any price and they'll go up. Uh, HashiCorp ended up going up. It was a, gave you a 10% win if you bought in on the debut. Uh, you held up to about, you know, 88 would have been the t a target and uh, leveled out. Day two run. We talk about this day two media cycle, especially for even, um, I wouldn't say HashiCorp's a brand name. I don't think my mom knows what HashiCorp is. Uh, but it did get enough investor interest in the overnight uh, headlines saying the IPO uh, went on, that it happened. People were like, oh, that's a strong corp company. They have, you know, incredible growth. We use that in my company. People came out the next morning, bought it up to, you know, maybe 90 is your target there. But when we see this early day two media run, I like to, if I am holding any position for that, I like to sell this initial spike. Trailing stop loss, follow it up. Often we see things kind of die off from there. 
Uh, one note to be said on this one is that when we do have a weak market, IPOs tend to price more conservatively, and that can be a good entry point. Um, but you know, we've got catalysts on the horizon, like Friday's inflation number, and next or this week now, uh, we kind of expect. I mean, I don't know how much fear and uh, you know we're pricing already into J-Pow speaking, but the guy seems to have a negative effect on the market every time he opens his mouth. So I don't know how you can really you know take highly That's speculative positions. I'm with you there. So. So, Matt, we do have a little bit less time today. So I okay, want to make sure we get the next things. Yeah, I just want to make sure we have enough time to get through all the all the IPOs we have coming up this week. So one point I want to make is that this strategy that I use is highly dependent on, you know, not playing every IPO. You start taking a few big wins and big wins are very possible and you start wanting to play every IPO. So a big part of what I'm doing and Assess, you know, in my research each week and sign up for the newsletter at ipowarriors.com. I'll break things down in more detail. I send that out usually on Tuesday uh, before the IPOs start. So I want to be identifying which ones have good chances to play. I'm going to focus on those and which ones are definitely like not worth playing. And the key considerations are, especially for low float, where right now we don't have, we have one or two big names going live and the rest are sort of obscure low float IPOs, which actually have been more profitable for me me than even the big blockbuster names. So low float used to be kind of like five to 10 million shares. Now there's a whole bunch of these kind of specialty underwriters that are almost competing with each other to bring these companies live with low floats. And the number has now I'd say gone down to like low float that gets the day traders attention, which brings the demand is kind of 3 million shares and under. I'm gonna look at who's the underwriter. If it's uh, boasted securities, I'm very keen. They've had a lot of highly you know, ups, you know, IPO debuts with high upside companies like Maxim and think equity are kind of hit and miss companies like Roth uh, have not done very well. Biotechs. There was a time a few months ago when biotech low floats were still kind of worth playing and still getting attention. Now they're not, uh, now it's kind of like, it's not biotech. Okay. It's interesting. Um, and we have some on this week. Social buzz, you want to look and see, are people talking about it on Reddit? Are people talking about it on Twitter? If not, there's just not going to be demand and there's no point in getting into it. The retail allocation, Webull, um, IPO, uh, so, sorry, Webull, uh, Robinhood, E-Trade, they're all giving retail allocation request opportunities now. If you put in a request and you don't get any allocation, that's actually a good thing. It indicates that there's high demand and a good chance that this goes up. If they do give you any allocation and it's significant, that's a sign that there's not a lot of demand. They're giving away, you know, shares for, you know, to, to normal traders like us. And how, who, who's left to want to buy after retail gets their allocations? Warrants. Warrants complicate things. Uh, you'll see a stock that is the float says five million or two million shares, but then there's uh, it's actually two million units, and that equates to two million units or two million shares and two million warrants. That means four million shares, and it ends up. Kind of confusing traders it shows that you know and then the ipo price will be four dollars and fifty cents with the ipo at five but everybody got two shares really so it just tanks down to you know below three dollars those aren't worth playing you want to be aware of lockup periods especially if you think you're getting into something with the low float and actually the lockup period might be the day of the ipo um or you know a week later that's kind of negates the whole low float hypothesis and then you want to look at that pre-day debut indication 
you want to see something with a premium. You want to see something priced at $5 and go live at like $8 or $9, as counterintuitive as that sounds. When the IPO, when the pre-debut indication is low, that means nobody's buying it and everybody's trying to dump. Then you have to worry about it just dropping out and there's no real indication, especially with these more obscure companies that you're going to get a comeback. So there's three that I want to focus on here and then we'll just blow through the rest as like very quickly say why, you know, why they're not. This one is interesting. This is Fresh Grapes, uh, V-I-N-E. This is a low carbs wine producer in the affordable luxe category with omni-channel distribution. Uh, they do have some revenue. If you're looking, you're not looking at this company really for the financials or the business opportunity or anything else. What you're looking at is the ultra low float, 2.2 million shares, and the underwriter is Boasted Securities. So this one is worth watching to see if there is demand. I know that it's sold out on Webull uh, last Friday. If people are talking about it, if the indication price is high, I'm not going to go for a big play on this, but it might be fun to be involved with this one. If you get one halt up, or you get a run up, uh, you might take some quick profits, but it's not the sexiest of the group. And I don't want to get stuck in a position for what's coming later in the week. Uh, the only mainstream IPO this week is Samsara. This is an Internet of Things play, which is why their ticker is cleverly IOT. Uh, they do software as a system. Um, S, uh, sorry, it's a SaaS that does business solutions for fleet management and vehicles. So basically tagging every vehicle in a fleet with uh, IOT devices and then helping people manage their, uh, their fleet vehicles. Their growth has been very strong. And in the past, this would be a sort of no brainer to play. This is going to be Wednesday, which is when j speaks. So, um, oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. It wouldn't surprise me if they pulled this. Um, but revenue, these are incredibly strong numbers. Uh, 74% in the nine months ending October 30th. Gross profit up 81%. Uh, the year on year uh, revenue increase is 109% to uh, 2021 to 2022. 144% 2021 to 20. Uh, sorry, this should be 2021 versus 2020. Um, my mistake there. Uh, they have strong margins. They are all, you know, across operating profits, net income, and cash flow. They're all negative, but they're all moving in the right direction. They have, this is also a mistake, it's 115. Just let me check back because that's annoying. 115. Um, and. Uh, these go up on the website, so um, if you want to download these later and check them out, I try to correct them afterwards. Um, the mid-range pricing is twenty-one fifty, which gives them a twenty-six x revenue multiple, which is already kind of high in this market. And I'm starting to, you know, when the market's strong and everyone's buying growth, these numbers don't matter at all. Uh, the hype can carry this up to forty x, fifty x, and then they'll settle down later on. But in this market. It seems to matter more and already at 26 that means i don't really want to buy this above like 24 and i don't really see it going up with 35 million share float so again right now i'm very you know ipo trades tend to reflect strength in the market and while we do get better you know more attractive entry points if this debuts at like 18 or 17 you might say well okay it can only come up from there ipo sellers won't be dumping at a loss on something like this but again, uh, J-Pal talks on Wednesday. I don't know if I want to take any positions on Wednesday. Um, you know what? That seems to be how the overall market feels today, Matt. Yeah, I don't see people. You know, I got a haircut yeah. to go along with my portfolio. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, nice. Okay. Hey, badoomch. All right. Okay, so here I'm just going to give one example, and then I'll apply this to all the others. Uh, GNTA is a clinical stage biotech, blah, 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 cancer applications, biotech. Even though it's a super low float, it's just these haven't done well recently. Um, there's, you know, they, there was a time about three or four months ago where everything low float was getting targeted. Uh, where these have done well is people let them drop off. They accumulate under, say, $3 if they debut at 4 to $5. Uh, and then they hold on to them. And eventually a headline comes along. And, you know, since they're low float to begin with, they just blow up. We saw, I think it was KTTA. We saw ABBO. Um, any of these super low flow, oh, IINN, um, a lot of these eventually, you know, and hopefully within, you know, two or three months, if you bought the IPO, uh, they catch a headline, they squeeze and they go up. So I keep a list of these and kind of watch for them to drop down to absurdly low prices. But playing the IPO debut just on a low float here is not um, is not working right now. We saw it last week with CINT. We saw it with... Um, NRSN, they both did the same thing. They priced at $5 with a warrant, debuted at about $450, 4 to $450, and just fell off to, I think both of them are under about $350 now. So uh, I'm just going to put this at low float biotech. But before you move on, this is the one I want to show you guys. This is Citus Space. This is SIDU. Uh, this is a low cost satellite technology. It recently received a NASA contract and the underwriter is Boasted Securities. There's already a ton of social media buzz around this one. There's an ultra low float, just 3 million shares. It was available, I don't know if it still is, on Webull. I put in an allocation request and that will kind of tell me everything I need to know. If I get um, you know, 100 shares, then I can say, okay, well, maybe I you know, misread this. If I get you know, two shares or five shares, then I can say, all right, well, that's not enough for people who got allocations to, you know, even if everybody sells on the debut, um, I think a lot of people will hold. But this is the kind of play that has just done phenomenally. And when we get that opening right into a halt, which I thoroughly expect this one to do, that's when you really have to start managing your trade. If you've taken a big position, you probably need to take some out of the initial halt. Um, but this seriously could do you know, two or three halts. And my strategy is generally by the third halt to sell everything. Uh, I probably wouldn't hold past a second halt on something like this. But again, you can look at the level two data and see, you know, if you're seeing multiple buy walls, that to me is a sign that things will continue upward. If I see one buy wall right at the halt price, uh, then it's probably time to say, okay, well, that was fun. Um, get out. But this one is about as close to a lock as I can, you know, forecast in an IPO, especially with a weak market. Not a lot of other, you know, day traders will flock to this one. Um, if there's not a lot of other opportunities to day trade something, then you have to look at this as a, you know, as, as a strong debut play. And if you look at it, it's low float. It's the right underwriter. It's got the social media buzz. It's not a biotech. Space is kind of cool these days. These guys have revenue. They have a very strong CEO. It's not just a, a gimmicky... I mean, it is gimmicky, but it's not a BS company. You don't want to be holding this for two days. You don't want to be even hold, you know, maybe an end of day run, maybe an early day two spike. Um, but this isn't going to run for, you know, into next week. Uh, you get in, you take your profits, you get out, you, you know, you, you take an early weekend. 
The last three, again, low float biotech, think equity, no thanks. Low float biotech, uh, medicine delivery is interesting, but no, you don't play these. Uh, Bioeconomics, no, skip. Don't even, you know, you can try to extract some profit off an initial dip and maybe a spike, but even there, people aren't piling in like they used to. If you want to take these, put them on your calendar, make a list of them. Here's another one, FDA approved device for remote pregnancy monitoring. Um, Matt, uh, this one's weird because the float seems to be only 766,000. Yeah. That, that's right. Before I let you go, there's a question about Nubank because you, uh, you made a comment about Nubank's float. And yeah. uh, can you just elaborate on yeah. that real fast? And, and, and then we got to hop. Sure. Um, so Nubank was incredibly, uh, I mean, it's a, I mean, now it's, I think, the largest by market cap, the largest financial institution in the world. I heard something like that. It's $48 billion. Uh, the float is 289 million. Uh, there is an additional 46 million shares available to the underwriter uh, for as an allocation option. So the underwriter has an option to purchase more shares after the IPO. Uh, it was also dual listed in Brazil and America. So it's not like the Brazilian uh, where this company, I guess, started. It's not like their their uh, people who are interested in that are going to be buying in, you know, off of the, um, you know, off of the American market. So um, it's an, I mean, it's an interesting company and maybe it's a long-term hold, but, it, you know, it priced it, I think, $9, debuted at um, 10, debuted up at 11, hold on, give me one second. It debuted at 11, 38. Oh. Okay. It opened, it opened at 11.25. Uh, jumped up very quickly to 12.20. Too fast to really get in a trade there. And then it dropped out. So when we see super high float IPOs, we have to kind of understand that, first of all, they gave a ton of, you know, they were trying to sell so many shares and it was on every platform. It was on E-Trade. It was on... Uh, Webull, it was on Click IPO, it was on Robinhood, it's on TD Ameritrade, and people got pretty decent allocations who requested them. So when you see people getting those allocations, a lot of people might be like, oh, well, I wanted it and I got the IPO price, great. Um, if they got an initial spike, uh, they might sell right away even if they're advised to hold it for 30 days. If they didn't get that spike and they're holding it, great, but they're not buying more. So you're not going to see a rush of new buyers if they already, you know, once people have already been fed, they're not hungry. They're not going to, you know, uh, flock to something right. and buy more right. shares. When there's 290 shares to buy, I mean, how much <laughs> demand has to be higher than supply to move the price up? So And, and so we saw it with Rivian. It went up and then crap, it like went way down. And then right. they right. do right. brought in. Uh, but no, I, 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 st I tend to kind of draw the line at about 50 million shares. After that, it's very suspect to me that we'll have demand outpace supply. 20 to 30 million shares. It has to be a pretty solid company at a pretty good price for me to feel interested. Under Got 20 it. million shares on a solid company feels great. But for real low float action, we're talking 5 million shares uh, or less. So, All right. Yeah. Matt Hammond, IPO Warriors. Matt joins us every single Monday. Always a pleasure, sir. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. Cheers. All right. 
All right, let's pivot from IPOs to Forex here. Let's bring on our next guest. He's actually a new guest joining us for the first time today. Giles Coglin is the Chief Currency Analyst at HYCM. We're going to talk uh, what is going on in Turkey, Aaron. Do you know? Some crazy stuff. I have literally no idea what's it's, going it's on in crazy Turkey. stuff. And we're also going to talk about the Fed and all that and how that impacts things. Let's bring Giles on now. How are we doing today, sir? Yeah, doing great, Spencer. Aaron, great to be with you today. Really looking forward oh, to man. your time. You're so cheery. Thank yeah. you for being Spencer, so cheery. Spencer, I don't know if we've ever had this well-dressed of a guest on our show. Before. No. Oh, he's, making us look, he's making us look like schleps over here. <laughs> I've got to be on I'm my best behavior for my first appearance, so I thought I'd brush up nicely for you all. <laughs> We appreciate that. Uh, I don't know if this is that kind of a show, but we appreciate that. Where are you joining us from? Uh, from the United Kingdom. Just we're, just we're, outside we're, um, Wolverhampton, Birmingham, the second city here in the UK. Awesome. Like, awesome. What do you mean by second city? Second city ever? Uh, so <laughs> London's the capital and the second city is Birmingham. It's, okay. It, it's like Chicago, dude. Second city. Interesting. Right, New York. I would have guessed uh, London, then you got what, like Liverpool, Manchester? Yeah, they, they are sort of like higher cities, but Birmingham is the second city, and they're talking about doing a high-speed rail network between Birmingham and London just to try to link the capital with the second city and just sort of stimulate business more in the UK. All right, uh, I, I got. We got to start talking about. I, I got to find out what's going on in Turkey here because I, I teased it. There's some crazy stuff happening in Turkey with with regards to their currency yeah. and their central and their central bank. And basically, if you if you're not following the story, the Turkish lira is like tank, tank, tanking, like tanking, tanking. Yeah. Uh, tell us what's happening over there. Well, essentially, what's happening is the president has a very unusual belief, and his belief is that high interest rates causes high inflation. Now, what actually happens is that when you have high inflation, a central bank will increase interest rates to keep inflation down. We're all very familiar with the high inflation story that's going across the world right now. And the concern is that central banks around the world are going to have to raise interest rates. But in Turkey, their inflation is up over 20%. But instead of raising interest rates, their president is saying, no, no, no. We mustn't raise interest rates to combat that high inflation. We have to cut interest rates. We have to make interest rates lower. So this is what's fueling this incredible weakness in the lira because it's such an unusual belief and it's so counter to how the financial world works that his unique beliefs is actually causing a crisis within the country. That, in a nutshell, is what's going on. So you've got President Erdogan, you know, telling his country, no, 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 you know, the high inflation is being caused by high interest rates. The last thing we ever want to do is raise interest rates. It means that the central bank is politically handicapped and is unable to raise the necessary interest rates. It probably needs to raise interest rates by between 5 and 10% to start bringing inflation down. Oh my but instead, uh, you know, President Erdogan is like saying, you know, that's the last thing we ever want to do. In fact, we want to cut interest rates. 
that's the heart of the problem. And, and that's why the, the lira keeps weakening and weakening and weakening. All right, you, you hear that, everyone? 20% inflation. Quit your crying. It could always be worse. Yeah. So, Spencer, <laughs> that means, for instance, you might go to the shops in the morning, and by the time you come back in the evening, the price has changed. That's the Aye. kind of inflation you're talking about. So, like, the economic theory is, you know, lowered rates combats inflation. Do we know why he thinks otherwise or no spencer no i haven't gone in in depth into okay. the what's driving his philosophy okay. okay i simply know it's a very unusual and it's counter to the received wisdom around the world and in fact the only tool that i'm aware of that a central bank has to combat rising inflation is raising interest rates that's for me as an fx trader it's so reliable when yeah. it looks like a country's going to be raising interest rates or inflation's going higher you expect interest rates to rise, so you expect the okay. currency to appreciate. What, why do you hold that, that belief, yeah. Spencer? I, have, I really have no idea. All right, that brings us to America, where we are experiencing inflation. And, yeah. oh, what you know? We expect to raise interest rates in the next year. Yeah. So, we, you know, we, we have, of course, a Federal Reserve meeting on Wednesday, Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday. They're, they're going to uh, hopefully give some more clarity, uh, an outline their plan for, for, for the next few months or so. Yeah. Uh, or, or beyond that. But, like, what is the Forex market saying about what it thinks will happen on Wednesday? Yeah, it's been really um, roller coaster in terms of expectation for what's happening with the Fed. And there's a lot of uncertainty, Spencer. Uh, yeah. I'll give you the big narrative and so you can see and I'll try and outline both kind of situations. So the last CPI print on Friday was really high, but President Biden had given out like a, a message the day before saying that, you know, uh, the reason for the high inflation was due to high energy prices. So investors started fearing that inflation was going to be above 7%. And the last two inflation readings out for the US have all exceeded expectations. Now, it was high. U.S. inflation is up to that 7% level, but it wasn't as high as the market was fearing. So ironically, we've had some interest rate hike expectations dial back since Friday. There's been a measure of relief that although inflation is really high, it perhaps isn't as high as feared. And now Fed fund futures are pricing in about two rate hikes for 2022. So what people are going to be looking at when it comes to Jay Powell speaking is they're going to be looking um, to what extent does he taper more quickly? He's already said he's going to taper bond purchases more quickly because the timeline is this. He said, I've got a taper. And then when tapering's done, then we'll raise interest rates. So what the market is thinking is the end of the tapering is also the beginning of raising interest rates. So if he takes longer to taper, that means the interest rates will start rising later. If he takes shorter to taper, it'll mean interest rates will start rising sooner. So the speed at which the taper takes place is going to be important. And then the hint to which he's going to link the end of tapering to the beginning of interest rates is going to be important. And that's how the market's going to be analyzing how quickly the Fed's going. Many people, and if you look at the long end of the bond yield curve, it's starting to flatten. So it means that investors are thinking that the Fed is about to make a policy mistake. They're about to raise interest rates very quickly in the short term. 
that's then going to slow down growth in the medium term. And so that's why there's no like interest rate hikes penciled in for like uh, 2025. So 2024 to 2025, there's actually an interest rate cut. So wait, I, I have a dumb question to ask. Um, yeah, yeah. The tapering, yeah. All, all, all that really means, I, I thought that was referring to the Fed slowing down and I guess the end point is stopping. Right, yep. their 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 asset purchases is that correct? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the the end point there is no more buying, and then it's a question of when and how quickly do they sell? Because that that's what they were doing from the last recession, and then five years ago, right? They were like, all right, we're selling, we're going to unwind our balance sheet. And that took several years, and yep. all that progress was undone, I think, by the pandemic. But I just want to clarify that the end point of the tapering is no more bond buying, right? Yeah. Okay. And the reason that markets are concerned about that is because they are equating the end of that tapering to the beginning of interest rate hikes. Even though the Fed have explicitly said that's not the case, okay. the markets are saying, well, what else is there to do? Okay. Um, so, so I'm curious. So in the last 15 years, at least here in the United States, we've had two major recessions, uh, of yep. course, in 07 and 08. And then uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic that caused the markets to crash. Yep. Uh, and the Fed's response was pretty different uh, this time around. Uh, you know, they went with a big stimulus spending package that, of course, ha had a better effect on jobs. But now we're seeing the um, outcome with inflation. If, if yeah. you had to guess, if, if we saw another big recession or stock market crash like that in the next two, three, four years, what what? how do you think the response would differ from what we saw this time around with COVID-19? Do you think they would revert back to more uh, with the conservativeness in 07, 08? Or, or what do you think they would do differently? Yeah, I, I think, Aaron, that there's been a fundamental shift in society about what level of pain we're prepared to see companies and individuals go through. So I think quantitative easing, asset purchasing is just going to be part of our financial framework for the foreseeable future. Now, if you look at the debt to GDP ratio here in the UK, it's about 100 percent. Now, some people become very alarmed at that debt to GDP ratio. It's very high. But if you compare that, say, to Japan, their debt to GDP ratio is about two to three hundred percent. Now, the reason this is relevant is because this is how much money countries are having to borrow to support their economies. Now, if you think of an average person's mortgage, they might be borrowing, what, three, four, five times their earnings in order to pay for their mortgage. So I think we're going to have a philosophical change that we're going to become much more comfortable with debt as a society. That generally, companies are going to be move more to the Japanese way of thinking and i think that there'll be a, a greater tolerance of debt there has to be because of covid 19 and the huge amount of debt that countries have have taken on but i just can't see a situation aaron where a central bank or a government is going to say okay you know we're going to have some fiscal uh, conservatism now and oh sorry there's the stock market's fallen 40 percent oh and sorry unemployment is 20 percent and they're just going to get voted out aren't they? And then they're going to be a new government will be voted in that say we're going to borrow our way out of the problem. So I think we are in a, a huge systemic problem. 
But I think what will happen, people will just become more tolerant to, to debt levels. So I, I, I don't think it is a massive issue in our generation. I, I would be surprised for it to be an issue in our generation. But at some point, you know, someone's going to say, well, how much how much debt is too much? Right. And that's why I think it's interesting you brought up the Japan example. I think a lot of people that are... It's always Japan. Japan always gets brought up. Well, if we're talking about what we could call modern monetary theory, you, you know, a lot of proponents of that theory felt very vindicated throughout the first yeah, um, you know, year of the COVID-19 pandemic after that said, hey, look, we can take on this debt. Uh, it, it will help us with growth uh, immediately. Um, but then now those yeah. same people may be feeling questions about why is inflation the highest it's been in the past 30 years, et cetera. So um, it's so fascinating to me, this whole field, because economics in general is it's not something that's uh, set in stone, black and white. There's all these theories being thrown around there, and then we have to kind of uh, adjust as we go. I mean, you look at Japan and you think of inflation, they've had disinflationary forces for years. So their level of borrowing did not result in a huge amount of inflation for Japan. So that that narrative about whether borrowing more necessarily equates to high inflation, I, I think, is, is, is an interesting one. And if you compare, say, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, their mandate is very much that inflation is transitory and very much linked to that supply chain issue. As people haven't been able to buy services due to COVID-19, they haven't been able to go to restaurants, they haven't been able to go out to meals. Instead, they've been spending their money on products and goods and services. Those, those, service, those goods haven't been able to be manufactured as quickly, so we've had the supply chain bottlenecks. So I think that that narrative does make sense. And if you notice the U.S., I've noticed in the U.S. that inflation has become very politicized. And oh, yeah, very yeah, yeah. no kidding. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, is seeing how politicized it was means that, that, that that's, a that's a difficulty for monetary policy. And I think that's why Powell had to shift his narrative. Whereas if you look at the ease, uh, the last Reserve Bank of Australia meeting, they talked about inflation being transitory. You look at the ease of Christine Lagarde talking about inflation being transitory. You look at the Bank of England, the confidence they stated in their last central bank uh, for forecast that inflation would peak at 5% and then drop. That, for me, the only explanation that I can have for that is politicization. Now, that yeah, doesn't yeah. mean that it's not going to happen, but it means that there's a different um, interpretation of inflation circling around the globe. So, yeah, I'm curious if Spencer here, I'm not going to make the argument, but if he wanted to make the argument that he said the inflation that we're seeing in the United States has less to do with the Fed's policy and the debt and the spending um, yep. and more to do with the supply chain bottlenecks and certain goods becoming uh, more expensive because of shortage of supply. You yeah. know, would you see that as a legitimate argument or, or would you say, no, this has more to do with with what's going on with the Fed and the central bank? No, that, that makes sense to me, because if you think about it, a lot of people's incomes have not been badly impacted by COVID-19. I know some people's have been and it's been it's been tragic for some individuals. I understand that. And there's been some tragedies, but there has been some examples where a large amount of people have able to use the government support and they've large amounts of savings so 
what do you do with all those savings? Well, you might think to yourself, oh, I, I would like to go on holiday, but oh, I can't go on holiday because of COVID-19. Or you might think I might like to go out to my favorite restaurant. I can't go out to my favorite restaurant. So what do you suddenly look at? You think, oh gosh, I want to get a Peloton exercise bike. I want to go buy a new laptop. I want to buy a, you know, some good, maybe a new car. So you all of a sudden direct all that pent up savings into some specific goods. But then of course we've got supply chain issues and those goods can't satisfy the demand. So I find that narrative compelling, Aaron, because it seems to be logical. It, it seems to make sense of the pent up savings, the desire for goods over and above services, services that would normally absorb some of that extra uh, cash aren't able to. So the supply chain issues have also been struck due to COVID-19 logistics and supply issues. So that narrative is, is logical. Uh, and given the fact, like, let's go back, what, two years. Do you remember all the narratives going around saying, you know what, inflation will never see inflation again because we've got a globalized marketplace. So there's someone in India who can do your job. Okay, so yes, you might feel confident over there in California or in the US, but you know what? There's a guy in Delhi who'll do it for one fifth of your price. And as a consequence, wages are not going to rise. Has globalization ended? No. Has it increased? Yes, because digitalization has got more. Look at us now. You know, we're talking digital. So that means all of a sudden you've got a globalized workforce. That means the pressure on wages is going to be down because there's someone that can do my job and your job anywhere in the globe. But that, but of course, that's not what's happened in the last year and a half. How can, you do, how can anything else happen, Spencer? Because the fact that you could do a digital job anywhere in the world... But wages are actually going up for the first time in God knows how long. So Yes, but the reason wages are going up, Spencer, is for a totally different reason. And that's because, okay. take an example here in the UK, right? So there's a, there's a restaurant owner. He wants to open his restaurant again. Oh, all his low-paid staff who've been subsidized by the government don't desperately need a job anymore. So we said, oh, can you come back and work for me? And I say, no, sorry, I'm not really interested in doing yeah. a two-bit job anymore. Uh, yeah. Okay, if I pay you 20%, will you come back? And the rest, and they go, yeah, well, okay, I'll do it for 20% extra. So right. yes, wages are going up, but that's only because all of the pent-up savings and all of the unique situations we have of COVID, as soon as that goes, th that'll be gone. All right. All right. Uh, yes. Uh, I feel like we need to caveat here that high, that more consumer spending is better than less consumer spending. Right. So like the the opposite. Yeah. Is, right. OK. So, yeah, that's good. Right. That's good. That's Not if prices rise, Spencer. But say that restaurant owner says, OK, I've had to employ the chef 20 percent more. I've had to employ my waiter 20 percent more. Do you know what? I'm going to raise my prices by 25 percent. Well, of course, because right. I'm worried. Right. So, so then, so then, if the wages at this restaurant go up, and, and yep. I assume the the wages aren't gonna 
uh, you know, six months from now, he, he, the owner's not going to say, all right, okay, inflation's going down. Now I'm going to go back to paying you less than 20%. And likewise, I wouldn't expect him to uh, yeah, make the menu right. prices go down as well. So yeah. if inflation does go down, but then the wages stay higher and the prices for the food stays higher, what's the effective uh, difference? I mean, it, wouldn't that be kind of similar to inflation just staying the same where it is? You've, you've got it, Aaron. That is what the Bank of England are worried about. So tomorrow we've got, you've, we've got jobs data coming out in the UK. Now, the Bank of England are worried about rising wages. If rage, wages rise, the risk is, as you've just put, your, you, you put the hammer on the head, inflation becomes systemic. It's out of control, right? So I'm looking at wages tomorrow. And if I see wages popping up, like 3.9%, 4.2%. I know the pressure's on the Bank of England. And that means the pound's going to start potentially rising because investors will be afraid. They'll think the Bank of England has been spooked. So on one hand, they've got COVID-19, they've got further restrictions, they want to keep monetary conditions easier. But on the other hand, oh my goodness, wages are rising, inflation's going to become systemic, we're going to have to raise interest rates. And then you see you're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. And that is the place we're in. So what will happen? Look, hey, I'm not a prophet. Neither are you. We don't know how it's going to happen, but we can see the problem. And that's the problem that central banks around the world are going to be wrestling with. And my simple point is this. We've got globalization and automation on the one hand. That is a long-term deep, deep pressures inflation. That is a disinflationary force, which has been in effect, it, you know, for years, despite all the QE that took place, despite all the doomsday, uh, uh, you know, profit saying that's it, inflation is going to be out of control. No, globalization, automation largely kept it under control. We're now in a situation that if the um, wages keep rising, if inflation becomes systemic, we could be in a situation where inflation does get out of control and no one exactly knows what's going to happen. But that, that, that's the, the beauty for me is you're going to have the movements between central banks. They're going to be jockeying for position and that moves currencies. This conversation is endlessly interesting. I feel like we could go back and forth all day yeah. walking through the different scenarios. But uh, – we, yeah. we, uh, we, we, we've kept you long enough. Uh, Giles Coughlin uh, is the chief market strategist at, I'm sorry, chief currency analyst at HYCM. Uh, and uh, we, we've gotten some great feedback. We will definitely have to have you back on the show again soon. I know it's yeah. later for you, so thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, we appreciate almost, the time it's today. It's almost 5 or 6 p.m. over there, so, so go have yes. a bite for us while, while we're just Aaron, starting our it's, afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure, and if ever you want anything on currencies in particular or any central bank decisions, I can absolutely do a great job for you. All right, cheers. All right. Hey, do, you, do you like my cheers there? That was good. The, the, okay, that was an endlessly interesting conversation, and this is what I well, love. for us, I mean, for some people, maybe endlessly boring. Well, this is what I love and hate about e uh, uh, economics at the same time, is like it's all whatever narrative you can tell yourself on the uh, on the, but it's all it's all theoretical because we saw like the second shit hit the fan last year, right? Um, a lot of textbooks went out the window, right? Modern monetary theory was laughed at, right? 
by means Bef- before you're saying right before, before. It, my, MMT was this idea that you could th- pump endless money into the system and it wouldn't um, it wouldn't screw things up and then that's what happened and it didn't screw things up at first and it was like oh all right it's kind well, of what, we, what we saw I think before we saw this level of inflation we're seeing with the US dollar is we're seeing exactly what a lot of modern monetary theorists said would happen was that you would see inflation of certain assets i.e stocks i.e real estate so before you saw the actual inflation at dollar you saw a lot of uh you know we don't call it inflation in the stock market we just call it going up but uh you know you saw these prices increase in assets in equities in real estate and for a lot of people if you were invested in these assets that did inflate they inflated at a higher rate than what we've seen with the u.s dollar so you would still come out on top right and and that's the thing like you said spencer with just economists and and theories in general is it's no it's not black and white and i remember i think i saw a tweet sometime or maybe they were talking about a podcast but there are few other jobs out there that you can be so wrong all the time so many times and then still have a job if you're an economist you can be wrong every single day for five years and someone's still paying you to put these narratives and takes out there uh and and like it's crazy giles giles i I don't know giles like he said it's it's become a very politicized issue in the united states not um, just here in the United States, but it, but now we have to like work that frame around the narrative too, yeah. right? It, we can't talk about inflation without it being a political discussion. Um, yeah. So the, on the one hand, that's why I love economics because it is it is so theoretical. But on the other hand, that that's why I hate it because like, you, for example, you can use the data to paint a narrative of oh, like consumers are flush with cash, all these excess savings. Well. If that doesn't apply to me, then screw the narrative. It's so, it's so personal finance is so personal to you that, oh, nice chart there. It's so personal to you that if you don't, if for, if for whatever reason your situation does not line up with whatever the broader economic narrative is, then, like, then, then it's useless to you and it's pointless because people, may, may, you know, policymakers may be, uh, making policy uh, under the guise of, oh, yes, broadly speaking, consumers have a lot of savings or broadly speaking, this is happening. But if that if you're not in that majority group, then you're shit out of luck, frankly, Um, which is why it can be so frustrating um, at times. Nice, nice chart here, AB. I like it. Yeah, this is just a a chart of the search term inflation on Google Trends. So you can see um, this time last year, we were at a 47. This just gauges the, the search interest on a scale from zero to 100. Uh, currently, we're at a 70, peaking at an 86 about a month ago. I think that's when that other CPI data came Wait, out. Wait, what was that high? Was, from, was that yeah, April? Back here. Was that May? May 100. That, mm. was, that was our first really hot CPI print. wonder what the, oh, okay. Um, okay. And, I, you know, so, so here's my hunch, Spencer, is that, I don't know, six months from now, and we can, we can put a launch bet on this. It, mm. it, if you would like to, okay. um, I don't know if you would take the other other side, but I am going to guess that it is, it's six months from now, so we'll call it June 15th or whatever, that we'll see this number well below where it's at now, 70, well below 50. Well, I, I don't know if this is going to be... Let's do May 15th because that's my birthday. Okay, mine's May 5th. Oh, I didn't know that. All right, so May 15th? May 15th. Okay. I think I think the uh, inflation 
search term trend is going to be below 50. What are we at now? 60-something? We're at 70 right now. 70? Do you want to see a really interesting one? Yeah. Can we compare it to something? What's Afghanistan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You showed <laughs> me this one. Wait. Zoom way out, though. Uh, this might be a, this oh, is a, this oh. is a year, but this is, uh, this is how short term <laughs> our memory is as Americans. So for like a week when all anyone wanted to talk about was the, uh, pulling out of Afghanistan and how, how badly that went, the search term went up to a hundred and then quickly two weeks later, it's back down to essentially zero. Wait, Shelly said do transitory, uh, that's do transitory. And I, on the Afghanistan thing, I remember, so the week when that all was just starting out, and I remember AB, we were in the office, and you like walked up behind me, and and you looked up on the TV, and they're talking about Afghanistan, and you and you said Afghanistan, <laughs> what year is it? Two thousand and one. Then like two days later, yeah. two days later, we we put out Afghanistan, and it was wall to wall coverage for like a week straight. That was uh, it was actually on Fox Fox uh, News Business or, or yeah. whatever, and they were talking about Afghanistan and the Taliban before. Uh, you know, it was like the biggest headline in news. So yeah. they were actually a, a couple of days before <laughs> early that, and it was. I just remember you, your comment was like, "What year is it? 2001?" And the next thing we know, it's war to war Afghanistan for for two weeks for straight. Two weeks yeah. straight. Yeah. Now I, I I would love to see like a chart of if at all if Afghanistan has been mentioned once in the last two weeks on any of the mainstream probably not uh, networks. Okay, so wait, transitory. Seeing. Wait, so wait, this is Google search for the word transitory. Yeah, I think that so it got up to 100. This might have been when Powell said, "All right, we're going to lay this word to rest." But yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's pretty it's, it's like inflation. It's been going up and down. Um so there no is inflation in the search for transitory. Yeah, um okay, but the question was uh um uh inflation below fi- above or below 50 and you're saying it's going to be below 50? I'll take the other side of that bet. All right, so you think more people are going to be searching for inflation in um Six months from now, we'll call it. Or no, well, more relative to what you think, yes. All right, I'm going to pull up my pro. Uh, let's talk some stock, Spencer. Yeah, well, and then before we do that, um, we hear you in the chat. We take your feedback seriously. We will do our very best to get more people with British accents, or any accent for that matter, on this show. We, they, seem, they seem to want that. They seem to want more Brits. That's what they said. I mean, you and accents, I... Accents are always fun, Spencer. What, what can I say? Um, oh, SF says the answer is yes to your Afghanistan question. Well, there we go. Uh, okay, we will get more Brits on the show. We will do our very best. If you guys want, like, a specific topic to be discussed, like, let us know whether it's, like, what we just talked about or whether it's, like, you want more Forex-specific stuff or whatever you want to talk about. Let us know. We'll, we'll try to find someone who knows more about it than we do. Um, okay. Why are you looking at Sunrun right now? I'm looking at Sunrun because I'm looking at this space in general right now, Spencer. Clean energy, solar, uh, it's here. It's the future. It's going to, uh, you know, take over eventually. All Yeah, they've been saying that for 20 years. I know, but now it's time. And I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Well, I already have. Sunrun is in my long-term investment portfolio. To me, the chart looks good right here. We're sitting right at previous support. I want to see us swing back up here. So I'm adding run and array to my watch list this week. Uh, Yeah, thoughts? My thoughts are solar panels are getting cheaper and cheaper, and they have been for like the last decade. 
And that's one of the that's one of like the. So you think that's not going to be good for these companies' revenues? And, and well, that's been the argument, and it's been mostly right. I, I not mostly right because if you look at like the tan, for example, you pulled the tan ETF. That's been, I think it's you know made new highs this year. Um, but uh, yeah, I the thing with solar is it's so it's so cyclical, man. I mean, it's when it's hot, it's hot, and when it's not, man, it sucks. Like the, the, these these solar stocks, like they can really really drag. Well, I think Spencer, that's why I like these as long term investments. Like you said, they're very cyclical, so they can get volatile. You know, if you buy Sunrun, it could go down ten percent tomorrow. But do I think that this stock? Uh, let me pull back Sunrun's up chart. Do I think Sunrun will be worth more than forty two dollars five years from now? Can you can you can you, can we look up some valuations? What's the PE here? Do they have earnings? I don't even know. Can we go down? Yeah, let's there? check this out. All right. What do we got here? Uh, no, we don't no, have no. PE. Oh, wait. We have – what? We don't even have a trailing PE? That's not – oh, wait. All right. We, they, they no earnings. All right. Price of sales of 5.7? Holy cow. That's a lot, man. <laughs> All hey, right. Man, people, wanna, people are willing to pay that premium for companies that are going to be uh, making a lot of money down the road. So I don't know. If you, if you have a better if, – if you have a favorite company in the chat – uh, in the, the solar space, let me know because mine are Sunrun and Array, ticker A-R-R-Y okay. and Run, R-U-N. You guys know that I'm generally loath to pick individual stocks for this reason because I, we, could, we could spend weeks or months looking at financial statements and balance sheets and insider transactions and all that stuff and we and it and it could still not matter for the stock so you guys know that i'm generally loath to do that but uh i'm open to ideas here props to you for sticking your neck out man you, you you've got two names array and sunrun and you're taking a stand and you're planting your flag and you're drawing a line and you're doing all the cliches so uh props for that yeah another one that i that we added to our watch list last week that i also like the the long-term story on is quantumscape um, so this is one that, that, like I've talked about before, it's it's very highly speculative. Uh, so a lot of these high, highly speculative tech names have gotten beaten down over the last few months. If, if we look at this chart, um, let me get it pulled up. We can see that, look, this, this stock was trading at nearly $40 in November, and currently it's a $23 stock. So that tells me that 50% of this stock's value has been wiped out in the last month. Do I really think this company is worth fifty percent less than it was valued out a month ago? No, not at all. Well, was it? But was it worth that in the first place? That's the que- That's the question. But it shows what investors are 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 flowing money into. And for a minute there, right here, it, it was going back into highly speculative uh, growth mm-hmm. growth stocks, mm-hmm. tech, you know, whatever. And then we saw this sell off. This one for me is something that I have just a small allocation of my long portfolio. Because if QuantumScape's story does work out, if their technology yeah. does work out and being like an ubiquitous uh, technology behind EV batteries across the board, whether it's for Tesla, for GM, whoever, then this stock will, will Wait, 10x I, I have easily. a dumb question. What do they do? So they have a, a, a single state like lithium-ion battery that's supposed to be... Uh, the future of EV batteries. So, so it's all pre-sale. You know, they're not selling yeah. anything now. So it's one of those that no, pre-revenue. Yeah, it's oh, like it's like a home run. It's like it's like if fun. if this hits, it's a grand slam. Okay. Is it highly? Is it very risky? Yes. Okay. It, it's good. To, it's good to have a couple of these 
it's uh, it's probably good to have a couple long shots. I think that's how you beat the market is you find these diamonds yeah. in the rough, you get in early. Um, and if you're wrong on, say, if you have a basket of 10 of them and you're wrong on seven of them and then three of them work out, you still finish in the green. I've got a couple, you know, long shots myself. You guys know I've got SoFi. That's a long shot. I've got some cannabis. Those are long shots as well. So it's good to have some long shots in your portfolio. No doubt. No doubt. Um, someone just had a, made a comment in the chat, and I forgot what it was. Um, oh, yeah. We, uh, someone dropped end phase in there. Fear King dropped end phase. Christian's got Sun Power, SPWR, uh, Depolex, Vroom, VRM. Um, not, not solar i don't think but maybe it is i don't know i don't actually know too much about solar. how about on the other side i mean on the kind of value side do we have any stocks that we like right now that are maybe a little bit less speculative Val oh you're asking for underloved value names yeah like how's what's costco oh, looking like no dude costco is a monster but ha but i mean costco is a beast fun fact i just listened to a podcast about costco this morning um and how their business is structured. Um, that Costco's a is a that company's you can't stop it. So. This is actually interesting. The chart. So we're right at previous all time highs. If we break through this, we could see a little bit of a breakout in Costco. Um, trading right now at five hundred fifty eight dollars a share. This one. This was a stock Spencer that before the the COVID crash was at three hundred and sixty dollars. Sure. So sure. it, it's almost gone up a hundred percent from its pre-COVID levels. Sure, one I, of the, one of the big winners. I, I want to ask you: Do you know, on average, you, and this goes to the chat? I'm going to ask everyone this: How long it takes a new Costco location to get to profitability? Uh, Costco, Costco spends. So an, you're taking in the fixed cost of actually. Yeah, so the so, so I think I think it costs Costco somewhere in the neighborhood of like a, a hundred million dollars, maybe a little bit less, maybe seventy five to hundred, to 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 build and open a new location. They do like twenty or thirty of those a year. Does anyone want to guess? This I listened to a, a great podcast on this this morning. Uh, Opex has one year. It is it is more than one year. Do you want to guess how long it takes Costco to break even? Three and a half years. It is more than three and a half years. Ten years. It is not quite ten years. It is like eight, it's like eight to nine years. Eight to nine years. That's how long it takes Costco to break even on a new store. Ten and then, mo and then, ten months. That would be impressive. And then after the eight to nine years, it's just printing money every day. Basically, they 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 never close locations. They never close locations. So Chris Chris Cache, shout out Chris Cache in the chat brought up this one Formula One. So so Chris, let oh. me understand. So is this would this be analogous to me just buying stock in the MLB? Is it is it truly the the league that you can buy stock in right here? Well, it's the parent company that yeah that owns Liberty Media, same company that that owns the Atlanta Braves, right? The parent company. You can buy that too if you want. Yeah, I think it's Bat B. I don't remember what it is. No, um, no, it's 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 L, it's L. It's got like five tick symbols, man. I don't know. It's got it's five letters. It's it's a long one. Um, I'm not uh, sir, uh, quite up to the ownership structure here. I do have a hunch that uh, owning this gets you um, nothing. It, it gets you no voting rights. It gets you nothing other than some future profits. But this share doesn't come with. 
anything. I think there's a different share class for. for but but for, over for the, the last twenty years or so, we've seen the the value the valuation of both sports teams and leagues just like increase tremendously. So I I, I like this. I I want to have some exposure to the Formula One because like, uh, Chris said that this. Formula One racing has just been growing a lot over the last two years. I mean, Spencer, you're not a guy that I would have pegged um, being someone talk, talking about Formula One or whatever, but you've watched the Netflix show. I think a lot of people have also gotten into the sport by watching this Netflix show. I have friends that have never talked about racing in the past that yeah. have texted me saying, oh, my God, do you see Verstappen beat Hamilton? And it's like... And, and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what? I don't, know who, I don't know who either of those people are. Uh, well, I do. But either way... I, I think this could be a good investment, but I just would I would want to know the structure of, of like what when the share prices go up is it is it just yeah the same well as- uh, it's not quite the same as the green the green bay packers thing the, the the packers thing gets you actually nothing you you get a piece of paper um, you are not entitled to any um, uh, uh, perks any uh, uh, future profits any voting nothing you get nothing uh that's not quite how formula one is you do obviously uh get are entitled to to future earnings uh but i think that's all you get you don't get anything else um you don't get to vote in decisions and things like that um that being said uh i like but what's cool about being uh uh if you own shares of the green bay packers spencer is you can just tell your friends that you're a partial owner of the Packers, yeah, right. So Which, when you're watching the like like last night when the Packers were playing the Bears, you can say like, that's "Oh, my, hey, my team's playing. I gotta go." That, it's pretty that, cool. That's what they. That's why they. That's why you buy it. Yeah, it's you. You, you buy it to give to your kid and your or your or your grandkid one day. Um, the form of the one thing. So can can we zoom in on that? So is that an all time high, just today? Uh, uh, no, or, no, not today. No. Okay, but it's um, it's right around near all time highs. Because I did watch, obviously, well, not watch. I watched highlights and I watched it live. I was not up to watch it live, uh, but I, you know, I saw the race yesterday and how it ended. And obviously, it's you know very controversial and a hot topic of discussion in the sports world. Um, and the the conspiracy or one of the conspiracies yesterday was, oh, they screw this up because they know it'll be better for for the Netflix for the next season of the Netflix show, right? This is the Netflix effect. They screwed up the race to to make it better for the documentary that comes out, you know, in a year or, or Wait, or, how'd they screw up the race? There was some controversy over the ending. Basically, um there was a crash. So I I'll, I'll explain this as simply- No spoilers. I'm going to watch it on Netflix in like 6 months. Okay, fine. No spoilers. Uh there was there was a uh uh, a, a tie for first place going into the last race of the year, and uh, one, since you don't want any spoilers, I, there one guy was winning with like not a lot of laps to go, and then there was a crash. Let's call him Hamilton. Okay, Hamilton was winning with a, uh, a handful of laps to go, and there was a crash. And while they were clearing the crash, and they had a you know a virtual safety car out there, they ruled that uh, the the cars that were in between. The first place guy and the second place guy, we'll call him Schmerschmappen. Um, the cars that were in between them were allowed to pass the virtual safety car, uh, and that I guess was not entirely what the rules said. And what that ended up doing was it it it, it let the second place guy catch up to the first place guy, and the second place guy had better tires, so he passed him. 
and it was a whole thing. But anyway, the point here, the, the, my, my point in bringing that up was, um, and I hope I explained that correctly, by the way. I think I did. But if I didn't, then feel free to correct me. My point was there's going to be um, you know, a new season on Netflix next year. It'll probably be the biggest season yet. Um, is that a, is that is that in itself a catalyst for the formula for the Formula One stock? Oh, the, the Netflix show is a hundred percent a catalyst. Like I said, right. I, I think yourself included. There have been a lot of people that have been brought into the sport um, by the Netflix show. Wow, looking at the looking at the Netflix chart, this doesn't look pretty in the short term for Netflix. We see this double top up here. Um, it'll be interesting if we see this continuing moving moving down. If we catch that support right here at around 600, or if we continue following this 550 level. But um, Netflix, they've been talking about. They've kind of been tapering expectations about it, its growth, saying, "Hey, look, we saw this crazy growth through the COVID-19 pandemic. We can't expect this same growth uh, quarter over quarter." But Netflix, at the end of the day, is just one of those monster stocks out there, right? We can't talk about um, you know, the, the biggest tech name stocks, whether you're talking about Tesla, Apple, Microsoft, yeah. without talking about Netflix. Um, so this one to me, Spencer, where, where do you sit on Netflix right now? Are you bearable? Yeah. I mean, uh, the problem is it's been tough to be bearish with Netflix, but they themselves, like you said, have been trying very, very hard to damper expectations. And if you actually, the narrative that they've been trying to sell for the past couple of years has been, Oh, forget the U.S. Look over here. Look over here. Look at the other more. Look at India. Look at these other markets. Forget the U.S. Because obviously they've reached a saturation point in the U.S. And and there are only so many people in the U.S. that can get Netflix accounts. Um, we we, we got to be there, right? I don't know like anyone. I don't have a, a single friend, I feel like, that I can say like, oh, hey, go watch this show on Netflix. And they're like, oh, I don't have access to a Netflix account. You either have your own or you have access to one. I, my underlying theory um, that I, I like to subscribe to for investing and for business is that um, w we live in a world where the, the rich get richer and the big get bigger. And it's much easier for the the big guns, the established names to to just keep on getting bigger and bigger. And Netflix is, is the king. In, in their arena, make no mistake. Well, so. well that's why last uh, earnings report, Netflix talked a lot about Squid Game and kind of the impact that that could have on its international markets, like you said, Spencer. And of course, in Asia, in the broader Asia region, there's a lot more people than in the United States. So what that means is there's more potential customers. So by bringing in a larger market share of, uh, of Asia, I mean, if Netflix had to choose, could they increase their market share by 10% in Asian markets or the US markets, they choose the Asian markets because it's bigger. So I think going forward, we'll have to see how this plays out uh, with Squid Game. Do they put a sustained effort into putting out more content uh, like Squid Game that captures a, a larger Asian audience? And, and if so, I think that's very bullish for Netflix long-term. Like I said, though, in the short term, um, maybe we're just gonna be missing some, some catalysts in the near future and, and the technicals on, on the chart doesn't look great to me. I'm sure our next guest, Chris Capri, coming on in about 10 minutes, yep. may have uh, some other thoughts about the chart that maybe I'm not seeing right now. But either way, uh, a lot of these names that have just gone up so much throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, I, I feel like are kind of scaring off investors a little bit right now. The other thing is, you know, we talked about inflation a lot today. Netflix has proven time and time again that they can increase the price of their subscription and you and me and Aaron 
we will pay for it. Dude, I'm glad we you brought that will up. We pay for it. Maybe we can make this a segment on the show. I have to go through all my like subscriptions that I'm paying for because I know there are some that I don't use. Like I pay for a, a Disney Plus bundle that comes with Disney, Hulu, and um, ESPN Plus. And I'll... Okay, occasionally use the ESPN Plus to watch a game or something that's not on on our cable TV. But outside of that, I never use Hulu or Disney Plus. And I'm paying like 12, it's not a lot of money, it's like $12 a month or something, but still, like if I if the, if I go through and I find three of those subscriptions, they add up. I you can't see my screen right now, but I actually have a list of all the subscriptions that I pay for. See, I got to do that. Spencer's a lot more like he's got his own spreadsheet. He's got do, Excel wait. Do, sheet. do you guys want to see? There's not many of them. I, I can show you if, you if you're interested. Like I actually like keep track. I have a spreadsheet of, of everything in my financial life, and I keep track of all these subscriptions that I'm paying for, whether they're monthly or annual. Um, and in total, I am paying six hundred and seventy-eight dollars per year on subscriptions. Is this just streaming subscriptions? Or no, no, every subscription in my life that includes Costco. That includes Hulu. That includes whatever news sites I pay for. Six seventy. That's pretty good, I think. Six seventy per year. It's not bad. Anyway, um, that's that's let's move on. I want to know. Uh, we, we saw the news that CNN is coming out with CNN Plus. Mm -hmm. Who's gonna pay for that? Yeah, right. Probably. I mean, not not, <laughs> not me because I don't even pay for Netflix, man. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. Um. Hey, uh, Aaron, you were the one that titled the show today. You made it about Apple and Tesla. Uh, we should probably talk about that. Why did you make it that? Yeah, so I'm sure a lot of our audience saw, but today we, we got the news that Elon Musk has been officially named the Time Person of the Year for 2021. Um, so Elon Musk has been a huge name in finance and business over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years. But in the last year, Elon Musk has had a number of accomplishments, including going on Saturday Night Live, uh, becoming the face of Dogecoin, which quickly became the, the hottest cryptocurrency in the world for a few months back in, I don't know, January to, to April, we'll call it. Um, he saw his company Tesla become a trillion dollar company he became the richest person in the world for, for a time being i don't know if he still currently is or if that's back to to jeffy bezos from amazon um but either way a very eventful year for elon musk i'm looking forward to the uh time article about him being the person of the year uh, and, and then apple uh we've been talking about it i guess for the past week or so but apple is closing in on becoming the first trillion dollar company three trillion three trillion the first trillion what I say? Trillion. Three trillion. Yeah, the, the first three trillion dollar company. Uh, I still remember when Apple became a trillion dollar company. Uh, I think it was in 2015 or so. No, it was like 2018. Really? Yeah, it was 2018, and then it took them like two years to go from one to two. Maybe I'm thinking of when, when Apple surpassed. Um, who was it? It wasn't. Was it Microsoft? Apple surpassed someone to become the most valuable company in the world. This was back in like. 2015, I want to say 2012. Microsoft. Um, Might have I, been like, I don't know. It, it, it took Apple the entire history of its company to get worth uh, to get worth uh, uh, trillion dollars. It took them a year and a half to go from one to two trillion, or, or, or no, two years, two years to go from one to two, and it's taken them um, a little less than a year and a half to go from two to three. 
All right, let me, I got to find this real quick, but I'm going to pull you up something that I found very interesting. Um, Christian asked how many companies there are that are worth a trillion. I want to say it's just like five or six of them, right? Trillion dollar companies? Yeah. Uh, Tesla, Microsoft, Apple. Google. Amazon. Uh, I think that's it. Here. It's, um, it's, it's Apple, Microsoft, Google, which is Alphabet, uh, Amazon, Tesla. Yep, just the five. That's it. All right, I gotta find this. Oh no, not Tesla at the moment. Tesla, what Tesla was, but it's not now. Anyway, and also Meta was, but it's not now. But it will be again, most likely. Yep. And then we also should talk about AMC today, Spencer. AMC not having a great uh, day. Where's so it out? Is it? Is it? Is it still in the twenties? AMC. Yeah. Let's pull it up. Yeah. Let's let's pull it up on. I have not looked at AMC at all today. Yeah, it's at twenty three dollars right, so right now, but down fifteen percent. Okay, I don't know if this is a, a a sign of, you know, that the meme, the AMC GameStop trade is officially over, but not a great day for for AMC. So when did the squeeze start? At what price? At, at what price? You can argue the squeeze started at thirteen dollars, right? Because that was kind of the first. That was a, kind of the, one of the first big days. Um, the high from January when GameStop was the biggest thing happening, the high in AMC was 20 and we're at 23 now. And then really in, in June or the end of May, when it started popping off again, it, it, you know, it really started running up when it, when it got to 13. So it looks, this looks so bad this looks so bad okay I, I, I can't speak to the i can't speak to a short squeeze or i know people are like direct registering their stocks so that the brokers can't lend them out and that'll supposedly expose naked short selling i i can't speak to that i don't I, frankly i don't know um i can't you, you know what is the short interest yet the short interest on amc is um not even very that not even that high Eighty-seven million out of five hundred twelve million. Yeah, right? I think I think we've seen a lot of shorts flow out of out of AMC and GameStop. But real quick, Spencer, yeah. this, this is what I was looking for. So oh, can you zoom in? What is that? I, it's too small. Thank yeah. You. So if I all right, I'll zoom in and we'll, we'll I'll, I'll go chart by chart. Thank you. So this is Alphabet, of course, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple. How long it took each of these companies to add a trillion dollars of value? So it took Alphabet 500 days from about mid-2020 to, to current day, uh, 500 days to add a trillion dollars of value. To, to, to go from one to two is what you're saying? Uh, not necessarily. Not necessarily? To go from one to two, just adding a trillion okay, dollars okay, of value okay, okay, okay. in a, okay, in a period it. of time. It took... Um, Alphabet, 500 days. Took Microsoft, 473 days. So both about a year and a half. Took Amazon um, about two, two and a half years almost. 829 yeah. days. So this is from uh, 2019. Here's the COVID crash right Wait, here. Why didn't they start off? Okay, whatever. I don't care. Uh, I don't know how they selected these yeah, time yeah. frames. <laughs> why are these time frames? Okay, so here's what I think they did. I think they took the quickest... Uh, duration that okay. it took to add a trillion dollars of value at Fine. any time in the past, you know, whatever. Okay. We'll say that. Apple did it in 118 days. It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, Apple, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it right now. Apple is my goat stock, greatest stock of all time. Oh, that's not... That, I thought you were going to say... <laughs> 
<laughs> I thought you were saying the exact opposite. I thought you were going to say Apple's my short of the year next year. No, that's God, I, no. That's where I thought you were going with God, that. God, no. <laughs> I, gave, I gave Apple out at, at, at 160. I said I loved it, and everyone was like, oh, my God, it's so overvalued. Every, everything is, uh, you know, a bubble. It's going to burst all this stuff, and it's gone up. Uh, let's see from where I, I gave it at. I, I remember, while you look that up, I remember texting my friends. It's gone up 10% in the last like month and a half. I remember texting my friends in January. I think it was January of 2019. Or, no, it was, um, shoot, when, no, it wasn't January 2019. Jonas is asking, what about Tesla? Tesla became a trillion-dollar company after the COVID pandemic, so you would have to go like from inception to that time. So it would be like, eight or nine or ten years or something yeah i think i texted my friends in january of 19 and i said hey apple's at its lowest point in like three three years if you want to buy it now is the time i, I think i think we did. should do that though because i think like you said or, or like you you kind of gave me um shit for like apple it, it's not really a hot take to say apple's the best stock of all time but i think a lot of people would argue uh, you know, Tesla or Amazon or some of these other stocks, but I think we we should do like an article series on that, Spencer. Okay. Like best stocks of all time and why. Wait, Jay Rice, what was the answer to your question? What was Jay's question? No, before he tells us the, the answer, I'm going to guess it. Jay Rice asked what uh, two stocks had outperformed Apple every year for the last decade i don't remember the question anymore. decade i don't remember the question oh, you guess domino's pizza is one yeah i'll guess crocs oh wait yeah okay it, it the question he put the answers in there so the, so the, i have the answers now the question was um i'll guess crocs i guess crocs too really so we get, <laughs> we're both guessing crocs and domino's pizza uh we were both wrong no one of them one of them actually now that he said it i i i, I didn't know that uh the only one i didn't know that not but. every year what is it just over the last 10 years i'm trying to find the question i'm scrolling up here it was if it's uh, over the last 10 years i think no Tesla. it wasn't it was longer than that okay it was nvidia maybe it was 20 years two stocks in the s&p have outperformed apple in the last 20 years nvidia might be one of them. I don't even know if NVIDIA was trading in 2001, though. Let's see. Yes, I'm sure it was. Um, and the answers were one of them was Monster. Oh, that's yeah. A, that, that's, that's easy once you think about that because that Monster chart is, is a monster. And the other one was – I had to scroll past it. Um, Tesco? No way. TSCO? Really? Let's see. Max. Oh, no, that's Tractor Supply. Never mind. I was going to say, like, uh, never, that's a, Tesco's a different company. Okay. Um, going back to 2001 to now. Tractor Supply. Wow. Huh. I definitely would never have guessed that one, Jay. Good trivia. Uh, okay. Thank you, Chris. Uh, okay, let's bring on Chris Capri, shall we? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. If you guys are new here and you don't know Chris Capri, um, he, he's a technical genius. He knows his charts and he's also got some very interesting option flow data. Um, so if you're interested in options, if you want to check out kind of how many puts are being bought versus how many calls are being bought uh, on a certain stock, just throw it in the chat and hopefully we'll have time to get to it with Chris. But without further ado, let's go ahead and bring Chris Capri on the show. <laughs> 
Well, I wasn't ready for that intro. <laughs> What's up, man? How we doing? Very good. And yourselves? Doing great. Um, we're all say, hey, just we're looking for some feedback. If that intro was too loud, let us know, people, and we can turn it down a little bit. But we have. Well, I, do we have a new one? I might have played the old one on accident. Well, we have mixtures up here that mute that make the sounds quieter for us in our ears, but they're louder for everyone else. So if they're too loud, just let us know. Chris, it had some verb. It had some punch to it. All right. Uh, we like that. We like that. How was your weekend? Not bad. Yourself? Not bad. Not bad. Uh, today, this weekend, I, I learned that Aaron Bree used to be a lax bro. I didn't know that, um, but now I do. I, I played lacrosse for like three years. Come on. Not yeah. a big deal. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Chris, um, my, my take on Friday was like hands off for me until Wednesday because who the heck knows what's going to happen until then. And I, you know, I, I, I think. I think that probably the market is sort of telling you the same thing today. Is that is that your assessment of of today's action is we're just like, shoot, hands off till Wednesday? Yeah. So we got to look at it is that this week, and I think your assessment is you know totally right on, which is that we have, what, I think five central bank meetings this week. We have FOMC, which is a very, you know, heavy FOMC for a couple of reasons. You know, we've kind of had this little hints and hawkish plays from you know powell saying like hey we're gonna like quicken you know our our reduction in the tapering process that we're gonna slit slow the tapering down even further and that kind of spooked markets a little bit and so during such a low liquidity time it kind of is going to set the tone are we going to have a christmas rally or are we going to have some pullback into the into the markets and so this is you know if we look at it I mean, you, once we had that VIX rally, and let me open up the one hour chart here. So I talked about, you know, if you remember on the six, I said, hey, watch out. VIX is getting rich. It needs, because it's more and more expensive, it needs more and more capital to keep these elevated prices. If it fails, VIX will come back and create a tailwind in the markets. And we got that on this day, which is the seventh. So, but since then, gone nowhere. And what that really tells us as traders is that this rally was really more a kind of, it was a what we call a Vanna rally where implied volatility comes down and that changes the dealer hedging requirements on the option side. But once that VIX was unwound, most of the damage was done on the seventh, we've gone nowhere. And so that tells us that the fuel wasn't from traders building up positions because they're not building up positions before the FOMC. They're reducing their positions right now. They're or they're taking or they're you know kind of not really buying into the market because they're waiting to see how the FOMC is going to play. So we combine that with the fact that we actually have a very large December monthly opex coming this Friday, and you're going to see you know a big change in the structure of the market after Wednesday and certainly after Friday. And so because of that, this kind of low volatility, low build-in positions not much happening in VIX or anything like that. Like today we had a little bit of move in VIX, which caused S&P to sell off. But other than that, we haven't had much. VIX just consolidated. So once that happens, this volatility is going to open up, up or down. And really, I think traders are, today's VIX action, in my assessment, is really traders saying, we do have a little short-term front-end you know, worry about the markets that this could be kind of a very bearish move from Powell. And if it does, they're buying a little bit of protection ahead of time. That's why VIX is up on the day and SPY is down. Some people on Twitter were saying, oh, well, Apple's hitting, you know, tr 3 trillion market cap, the market will sell off. The market, the S, this S&P 500 
is more tenured to the VIX than Apple. So it's much, there's much more hedging flows due to the VIX on SPY than there is on Apple alone. So it's really a VIX play today. Like if you look at VIX and if you look at, if you compare it with the SPY, the it's, it's like near perfect identical. It's a complete inversion. Hmm. You know, here's the consolidation. Here's this, here's this. VIX starts to, uh, or S&P, start, or VIX starts to top out. That's what we're seeing in the S&P. So really what we saw in terms of the weakness to start off was probably traders just buying some short-term protection in it. And that's, you know, that's really what I'm reading in the market. So I think your read is right. I think traders are holding off. We've told our traders, careful on adding long exposure until we get FOMC, cut back a little bit, let's let this play out, and then we can take positions. Because if it isn't too hawkish, if it's not bearish, then we're probably set up for a Christmas rally to the end of the year. And so I think traders are just kind of saying, hey, let's get the all clear before we do that. So I think your read is right on. And so I think that's what's going to happen. With that being said, I think there's a trade opportunity here. Since IV has come down a little bit, you know, last week at the money calls on S&P 500 were 25, 26, 28% implied volatility. Now they're down a little bit. And so with that, there might be, if volatility is going to explode after FMC and Friday, which I think it is, I think there's an opportunity for a long straddle here. So, you know, S&P 500 has been stuck mostly in a three-point range minus this overnight expansion. And so we get towards the middle of that tomorrow before FOMC, late in the day, might be a good opportunity for a long straddle because if that volatility does get released, the straddle will make money up or down. So we don't have to know direction. We just play the long straddle on this one. I think that is the play to take on the S&P 500. I like it. I mean, I, I like it too. I, I like the idea. It, it seems like everyone out there is kind of a little bearish heading into this. Uh, into Powell speaking on Wednesday. So I like being on the kind of contrarian side. And I like also, anytime we have history at our backs, right, Chris? Like we, we've seen what has happened in the past essentially every single time Powell speaks. So to me, hearing people <laughs> say like, oh my God, I'm going to go short into Wednesday. It's like, why? why? Why would you ever do that when we have history showing us uh, what the market tends to do whenever Powell is speaking? Yeah, it seems like... I've been in this for 21 years. I was a broker on Wall Street. I, from my experience of what institutional traders are, most of them are not taking directional bets right now. They're paring back positions as a whole. If they were, we would see more directions in the market. You know, if somebody's getting long underlying, fine, you're not going to have theta decay. But if you're getting long options going into that, then I think you're going to be eating a few days theta, which really is unnecessary. That's why if I'm suggesting a straddle, like I myself have been looking at a long straddle, I'm waiting till tomorrow as close to the close as possible because then I don't have to eat Monday's theta on that and take that depreciation. So I think the volatility is going to unclench. I don't know if it's going to be up or down. I don't know how the speech is going to play out. I just know you combine that FOMC with the big expiration, you know, about 33% of the S&P 500 contracts are going to be unwinding. And we saw what happened last December OPEX. You know, last December OPEX was super clear. You can see it very clearly. Here's the OPEX and look what happens to all that volatility. Here's positive gamma leading into it. OPEX happens right around here. Boom, big expansion volatility because the options board was reset to a major degree. So I think we're gonna see something similar. I'm not saying it's gonna be down or up. I'm just saying, I think we're gonna see an expansion of volatility. And because of that, I wanna take advantage of that expansion. 
So with that being said, and I saw someone in the chat asking if we will be covering this on Wednesday. Yes, we will be. I don't know if Spencer will have to talk if we want to do just a live restream or maybe we add mm -hmm. some commentary yeah. um, depending on what time of the day it is. Um, but, Chris, are there any names out there right now that you're seeing some interesting uh, option order flow in? Yeah, Amazon. I'm seeing some bearish order flows in Amazon. And Amazon, you know, I look at the structure on the weekly. It's had a couple chances. You know, we had the breakout but quickly sold, you know, it tried to hold and then aggressively sold. Then it treated at 3,500 as resistance. It got above it again for a couple of weeks and we're back down. So I look at that and I feel like Amazon, I think is a sell and a pullback. I have seen some large option flows come into the bear side targeting 3,350. And that makes sense to me because if we lose, I think if Amazon loses 3,400, then it can be down to 3,350 in a jiffy. And let me show you. So, on the, so Chris, just, just to back up for a second, when you say yep. sell on a pullback, you're not saying on a pullback from the stock, you're saying a pullback from the trend. So if it go, actually goes back up. Yeah, I want this to, what I'd like to see is Amazon drift into 3,500 if I can get it. And so, you know, if let's say the FOMC is not that bearish, let's say it's mild. We could see a pop in equities and indices, but the way I'm seeing positioning in Amazon right now is that the dealer hedging requirements are kind of in this position where if we start to lose, you know, today's lows, we could be down at 3350 in no time because dealers are actually start trading with the market as it sells off. But as it starts to rise, dealers will start shifting instead of trading with the market, they'll trade into the market. And it's important to understand that difference. And there's just a lot of positioning around 3,500 that in even 3,525, like this right here seems like very strong resistance to me. There's a lot of positioning here that if we were to drift into this, I think this is a good location to sell. I think dealers will start to hedge and actually start to sell those rallies as we do that. And then I think you'll start to see also traders. There's a lot of open interest there for traders wanting to sell this lower. And most of the targets are targeting these lows down here between 34, 3340 and 3450. After that, you know, it may struggle a little bit, but there's definitely kind of like a ledge of positioning at 3400. And then there's a strong amount of positioning between 3465 and 3525. And if you see where 3465 is, you can see it right here where this little gap is. And this is where the yeah. pullback, that's where that positioning is. So between here here outside of the chart we did have some kind of bearish news on amazon over the weekend there is a, a obviously a big tornado that went through the, the midwest and kind of around my neck of the woods in st louis there was a, an amazon warehouse um that got destroyed by the tornado and, and apparently there were some employees in there that there may be some deaths involved so i, uh. I think we'll see over the next week and it's so interesting to me because this is why it's important to have a pulse on the news even if you're just a technical trader because in my head, I was like, all right, Amazon's such a big company, such a huge stock that I don't know if this news story is really going to move the stock. Um, but that's what a lot of people are attributing today's down day. And Amazon's actually down more than some of it than some of the other big name tech stocks and yeah. down more than the market overall. So even a company like Amazon can be impacted by these headlines, both negative and positive. So um, again, even if you're just a technical trader, it's important to keep a pulse on the news. Uh, we do have the live news feed in Benzinga Pro, so if you haven't checked Huge. it out already, uh, hit the I think it's one of the best news feeds out there because it's you know it's all in one cohesive technology, 
you know, it's all right here. As soon as I click on this, I get a chart going right away, you know, if I want to. So I have my movers on the day. I mean, it's just, I have earnings right here. To me, it's, it's the most succinct, easy to use app. And it's in terms of consolidating information, I haven't, once I got my hands on it, I haven't gone to anything else since. So I think it's an awesome app. Yep. Well, we appreciate it. All right. So we've got Amazon. Um, what is the next on your list? I want to take a look at Netflix since you mentioned it. And so, um, you know, what I'm looking at Netflix right now is I'm seeing a couple things, you know, first off right now, not including today's option positioning. So we had about 275,000 calls. We have about 381,000 puts. So it's definitely a little bit put heavy right now. And sure. Some of that is going to be people selling puts, but it's, there's definitely people buying put protection on it, especially after this big weekly sell-off. There's no way traders that are holding long Netflix positions aren't adding some protection on that. And so when I look at that right now, I see a couple of things. First off, I see about 20% of the options in Netflix rolling off this Friday, which kind of adds to that whole theme of, you know, the S&P 500 has a lot of options rolling off this Friday. There's a lot of single name stocks especially some of these strong ones like Netflix, like AMD, NVIDIA, Apple, Tesla. We're seeing a lot of stocks with a lot of options roll off this Friday. And it makes sense. A lot of people don't want to hold positions through the last few weeks of the year. You know, they want to close out their positions, close out their portfolio, lock in their gains, minimize their losses so they end the year strong. There's going to be reasons to sell them for tax purposes. So it's not surprising that this December OPEX is going to be a big one. And so when I look at that, I actually look at the position right now. I think Netflix short term is a sell on rallies. Medium term, I think it's a great stock. Short term, one hour charts, you know, what are we seeing? We had a nice bounce around 600. And it was like that same rally that we saw in the markets. But one day of selling took out two and a half to three days of buying. So there's still a desire to unwind some of this position. And so we are approaching support here. I feel like rallies up to 620 to 630 are short-term bearish before the FOMC. And I'm not, the problem with Netflix right now is, is that once we lose 600 or 595, which is this low right here, the positioning for dealers really puts them in a situation where they're going to start selling as the market goes lower. They're going to trade with the market and that could exacerbate the selling. And if they're selling with the market as it goes down, that's pulling liquidity out of the market. So it's destabilizing. That's one of those cases where it's it's like take the elevator down, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it stairs up elevator down, as they say. And I'm really not seeing uh, in terms of like a medium term perspective, medium term, I am bullish. We still have a lot of support below, but I'm not really seeing the hedging impacts from dealers come in till we get to about between 575 and about 545. There's a lot of liquidity inside here. We have a lot of time in history in here and you also have the breakout and the pullback here. So I think, you know, we get into this range between here and here and I think medium term and long term players will start accumulating longs in Netflix. And so short term, I don't want to be buying it. I would probably sell on mild to medium pullbacks, you know, maybe hold it for a couple of days or something like that till the FOMC, but then hands off, wait. And if we start to get in this zone, then I would look to build medium and long-term positions in Netflix. There's just so much liquidity in here. There's so much flows in here, so much open interest. At some point, it's going to find support in there, in my opinion. And I think when it does, people are going to start be like, hey, maybe the tide's turning. Maybe this bear trend's over. Let's start accumulating Netflix. It's just such a love stock. As you said, most people 
that you talk to on the street. Almost everybody has a Netflix subscription, but not everybody has a Disney Plus. You know, they're moving into games and streaming. That's another vertical that they have. They already have the client base that they can access to. I also think their move into Asia is also partially correlated with that because Asia has a lot of gamers there. So, you know, I think that's all strategically done. I think short-term yeah, bull- I mean, short-term bearish, medium-term bullish. We see these, uh, you know, mobile games that come out. You know, there's always like one a year that becomes like the biggest game. So who's to say that Netflix can't put out? I know they've already talked about a Stranger Things game. Um, if they haven't talked about a Squid Game game already, then they should. But you know, if they put out like th- that type of a phone mobile game or something where everyone's playing the the Squid Game game on their phone, then uh, you know that could be huge for Netflix. But I'm glad that. I saw kind of bearish in the short term on the chart. It sounds like, you know, you're agreeing at least until we can catch one of those support levels. Yes. Um, so, you know, yes. I'm, I'm I'm just happy that I didn't botch reading that chart. Yeah, I think your I think your analysis is spot on. Um, Tesla, I want to look at Tesla and App real quick. I do want to mention Arc because Spencer gave me a little bit of a hard time for it last week. We are right back where we were. I, I, I don't remember what I said, but all right. <laughs> If you that's all that's all Spencer does. He gives our guests hard time. So then my job is having to cool. To, to, Wait, I don't remember what I said. I, I, I said, I, I, said to, I don't want to be buying Ark on this rally. I think it's going to oh, fade back down. And I have so, to yeah. schmooze with the guests after they come on and be like, "Don't, don't worry, Spencer won't. It, it won't be like that again." <laughs> that's my job. Yeah, we're pretty much right back where we started with Ark. So I mean, yeah. What did I say? Short term, you can buy the rally, but medium term, I don't like it. And again, it's because. It's because ARC is exposed to a lot of names right now that are not profitable right now. They could be great companies in three to five years from now. They could be some holding some of the most amazing patents and technology that in three to five years, they could be amazing. Like they, they could be some of the most important stocks, you know, game changers in terms of technology. But short term, what are we seeing? Stocks like Apple are holding their ground or gaining ground. Traders are, investors are dumping positions in weak holding stocks that aren't profitable, that were great in 2020 in the first two months of 21, but haven't really materialized much since then. And so, you know, I'm, I'm still, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to take my position on ARC yet. But Tesla is an interesting one to me because from an order flow position, Tesla is in a very tricky spot. You know, what are we seeing in the bounces? And, you, you know, this is this kind of this is how you use price action to understand what's going on with the flows. If the bounces keep getting weaker and lower, then that tells you that the bulls are running out of steam. They're just not buying the dips with the same alacrity or verve that they did before. If they were, then the bounces would be just as high or higher. But we're not seeing that. Here's your first bounce. Here's your second bounce, about half as high. And it's shorter in duration, too which means that over time, it's not being bought up as long. If it's bought up consistently over days, that's order flow over time. If it's only bought up a little bit and then it returns back down, that means it was just a short-term flow. It's not a longer, immediate-term stabilizing flow. So we have a weaker bounce, and then now it's treating the weekly view up as resistance. So we're seeing lower highs. We're seeing weaker bounces. And Tesla is in this weird position where, don't get me wrong, Tesla has some great products, but because of the speed at which it rose up over that four week period. Because of this speed, it didn't have time to stabilize at levels and build a lot of open interest there. So it's kind of created a little bit of an air pocket for itself. And my worry is we get a bearish FOMC. I think if Tesla loses this 943 
we're back at 900 fast because there just wasn't a whole lot of time there. That means there's not a lot of flows there. It means there's not a lot of support there. So, you know, that's my one concern with Tesla right now. Tesla's kind of in a Netflix situation, short-term bearish, medium-term bullish. So, but it does have a little bit of an air pocket below it. And that's what I'm seeing in the positioning. Like once, once it loses 950, 945, dealers are going to start selling that to hedge their positions. They're going to start trading with that downtrend that will pull the liquidity from the market. It will destabilize it and that will just exacerbate the downside. So that's what I'm seeing on Tesla. And then Apple, I think right now, you notice how Apple, even though the market's down, it's, it's still holding like the gains or the losses are not that bad. That tells you there's still interest in it. I do want to say on this rally that we saw, what we have seen over the last six sessions is a huge jump in short-term options on Apple. And so maybe a lot of those people who were buying Tesla calls have now shifted their attention to Apple because Apple short-durated, short-duration options have exploded, just exploded over the last few sessions. And so I feel I like- wonder why. I wonder why. That's, well, that's, that's sarcasm. That's Yeah, I know. It's I mean, it's such a good stock. It's got so many things going for it. I think Apple is going to be in a really good position over the next several years. And so when I look at Apple positioning right now, what do I see? Before today's options, 4.8 million calls, 3.8 million puts. That's a very strong bias for a stock that's in every hedge fund, every mutual fund's portfolio. It's like probably one of the most owned stocks on the planet. And it has some of the highest overall options in it. But it's not like Tesla where it's a lot of short dated coming in and out. There's a lot more longer term flows as a whole in Apple. So we have a skew to the upside on the calls. And, you know, I think that right now we've probably hit the high of the week. I don't think we're going to, at least before FOMC, I don't think we're getting above 182 or having a daily close above that. And so I think right now we got, what, 20 20% of the options are rolling off in the January monthly optics. We don't have too many this week that are expiring. But I look at this overall and I feel like short-term resistance around 180 and I see I think 160 if we can if we lose 170 then it'll get to 160 in a in a heartbeat. 170 is a really interesting level because it was resistance now support here for this launch up. If it loses this, then I think it makes it into the low 160s and I think it becomes an excellent buy. I'll be long calls on that probably one month out January OPEX and maybe even do some leaps on that as well for the following January, 2023. I think this will be a great stock to offer 2023, assuming we don't get a major market correction. Leaps got to get expensive for Apple. Yeah. Yeah. They're expensive. You know, they're, they're not cheap by any means, but um, they will be a little bit cheaper if we get this nice sell off into it and you're not buying it for the, the price you're buying it for the potential appreciation that Apple really has in store for it over the next year. I think if somebody wants to do leaps on Apple, uh, a leaps on a particular stock, if they could choose only five stocks, I think Apple has to be one of them. They got so many things in the pipeline. They're working on solving the supply chain issues. They got the Apple car technology, which has pretty much been fully announced, but not fully announced at the same time. Like now we know that it's in play but we haven't seen the announcement about it yet. And when that comes out, you gotta remember Apple has this nice ecosystem. You know, everybody's, if you got the watch, you know, you got the phone, you got the Apple TV, it's all inside of an ecosystem. And then they can just integrate that directly into their car 
you know, Apple knows products. They know how to manufacture. They got that down. They know supply chains. They got that down and they know how to make really good products. And so if they make a car, it's going to look really sleek. All right. Chris Capri joins us every single Monday at 1.30 to give us some stocks and charts on his mind. Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. And as always, we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good. Be well, Zinger Nation. All right. All right. Uh, hey, before we wrap it up, uh, AB, I do have to remind the people about uh, today's sponsor because uh, we are moving up in the world and we do have a sponsor. So let's bring them up on the screen right now. I want to tell you about Nightscope. If you missed our, uh, if you missed them on the small cap conference last week, you missed a good one. Uh, Nightscope's fully autonomous security robots have generated over thirteen million dollars in lifetime sales and over a million hours of field operation. Nightscope recently announced the commencement of its Reg A plus offering. What does that mean? I'm about to tell you. With over twenty eight thousand investors and a hundred million dollars already raised. Nightscope is reimagining public safety. To learn more about Nightscope's offering, go to the link that's on the screen now. It's startengine.com slash Nightscope. I'll put the link in the uh, on the screen right now. Startengine.com slash Nightscope. If I could spell. There it is. Uh, check out the link there. More information is in the chat and description. Check it out. Robots, they're the future. They're happening. All right, that's a wrap for our show today. We got Moon or Bust going live right now, talking crypto, talking mongoose coin, all that good stuff. Hey, we're not doing too hot today on the likes front. Can we get to 100 likes? That seems like not a tough goal. We should be able to get to 100 likes, no problem. Yeah, and why, and why this stream will automatically redirect you to Moon or Bust. They are talking about Metaverse real estate today. Metaverse real estate, bullish. Yeah. So bullish. I, I, I don't know if if you've seen the headlines out there, but there were people that paid like a million dollars to be Snoop Dogg's virtual oh, yeah. neighbor. I saw it. Um, we're gonna learn more about the Metaverse real estate on Moon or Bust. Stick around. We're gonna go ahead and get over to Moon or Bust right now peace and love zinger nation we'll be back tomorrow at 11:30 a.m eastern time with that have a great rest of your monday